Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, June 24th, 843-661-0937. You know what we say about today, don't you, Freehold? Takes Mondays to make Fridays. This is the good part of that equation. And the countdown continues, Royal Rev. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good to see you early this morning. Oh, what is the, the deal Stumbling with the... in at the last moment, reeking of alcohol. Oh, right. What's the deal with the working late last night and up early this yeah, morning? I don't it's, know if I'm... It's called the grind, my man. I guess so. You like paying your bills? I do. You like keeping food on the table? <laughs> I do. There you go. It's just what we do to make those things yep. um, happen. Uh, 843-661-0937 is our number. Forget gun rights. Forget education. Forget debates. Um, something is happening right before our very eyes. You ready? The Braves are on one of these monumental runs. Um, I was not a big believer because they whooped up on some pretty bad baseball teams. Bad Would teams, you agree with that? And they were getting beat by good by teams. the good teams. Um, if they can win two of three, here's our resident Mets fan. Oh yeah, uh, Mudflap and the kind of ten turned into four. Is all I, I say, Mudflap. I know ten turned into four. Um, but the Mets are legit. I mean, the Mets, that's the difference this year than last year. The Mets are legit. You have consistently said that. Well, I mean, and, and if Degrom and Scherzer get back, they might be a little better than legit. And, and the Braves dug a big hole, getting roughly ten games behind, and now they've cut it to four. Um, but the Mets are still in the lead by four games. And I'm just saying, um, the win, not yesterday. They win yesterday. I went about seven to six, if I'm not mistaken. I had a big lead. It was a daytime game, and I didn't get, we were Um, setting up for our debate. I didn't get to see it. But the night before was the big win. Uh, The night before when they beat uh, Rodon, and they were down two to nothing, and he looked like he was lights out. I mean, that that was the game that that made me somewhat of a believer in, okay, okay, um, let's see where we go from here. And to come back and win the next game in kind of dramatic fashion, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it appears to be, sorry, Freeho, it appears to be a two-team race. I mean, the Phillies are fading fast. That's kind of a baseball proverb, the Phillies are fading fast. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of one of the, um, <laughs> we say this about every end of June, um, 1st of July. But uh, the, remember that game. Remember that game against Rodon. Um, they're, you know, really good major league baseball pitcher. I'm not mistaken, came from NC state. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think he's the kid that went the, um, I mean, he was lots out of the ACC, lots out for NC state gets drafted and he's lots out in major league baseball. I mean, he is a, uh, as we like to say in the baseball, he's a stud. I mean, he, he's a one starter. And when he has his a game, you better try to scratch out a run or two or three, if you can. And the Braves beat him, come back and win the next game. And, um, and it looks to me like, now the Dodgers come to town, if I'm not mistaken, this weekend is Freddie Freeman yeah. and the Dodgers yep. come to town. Tonight. That's Starting probably, tonight. I want to get your opinion here, that's probably still the best team in the National League, P- player for so. player, roster for roster. The Mets are probably still the, I mean, excuse me, the, the, uh, the Dodgers. Dodgers are probably still the best team uh, in Major League Baseball. They made themselves a good bit better by getting Freddie Freeman. Uh, Braves fame. Um, so Freddie pays a visit back to Truist Park. Um, yeah, I'll make an effort to watch some of the baseball this weekend with the Dodgers and the uh, and the Braves because it's beginning to shape up as a Mets Braves pennant chase um, and beating the Giants three or four. That's uh, a pretty big deal if you're a Braves fan, especially the way they won against Rodon. I mean, when you do that, it kind of it exudes confidence. Okay, okay. I mean, you know, because beat. I mean, they had a crazy win streak. But when you go back and look, it was a lot of bad baseball teams that they beat. I mean, nobody beats all the bad baseball teams 14 games in a row. I mean, that was odd. But but you should have been 
what nine and five or ten and four or something like that during during that streak. So that that's not knocking it out of the park. Beating Rodon three or four, or excuse me, beating Rodon, winning three or four against the Giants, that's getting it done. And if they could figure out a way to to beat the Dodgers two or three this weekend at home. If I'm not mistaken, it is in yep. Atlanta. It's Atlanta. Um, well, in it's fact, Freddie's Freddy being presented his World Series ring tonight. Okay, good deal. His good return deal. to Truist Park. And the Phillies are fading fast, as we like to say, <laughs> uh, here on um, on Freehold's behalf. Uh, but they hey, still get to pay Bryce Harper all that money, so they, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> he's a really good player. He's good. I don't know about I, the best player in the world, but he's a really good I, player. I'm actually a fan of his. I, yeah, well, I mean, he's, the kid can hit. I mean, he's not a kid anymore. He's <laughs> He seemed like a kid just yesterday. Um, the thing with Harper, he's always played in the shadow of Trout. You know, there's always been this Harper's good, but Trout is kind of on another another level. Trout may be the best player of this era. I mean, all around, how he many, may how be many the best season games he played in. No, but, but that's not his fault. Oh. Uh, let me ask you this: I'm just, I just can't do you wish remember. Trout play, was playing center field for the Atlanta Braves? <laughs> you darn right. Yeah, I wish he's playing center field for any team I pull for because he is a generational talent. I mean, Harper's a generational talent. It, it's a little bit like Harper would be Phil Mickelson and Trout would be Tiger Woods. I mean, Phil's a, a phenomenal golfer, has had a phenomenal career, um, but he played in the shadow of Tiger. And Harper has had a good career. Not, I don't know about a Hall of Fame career, but but if he keeps playing, you know, he'll be a Hall of Fame candidate. Uh, but he's played a little bit in the shadow of Trout. Now, to your, to your point, one of the things Trout has not done is gain postseason fame. The Braves during that run, and, and I'm convinced of this, the reason Smoltz, Glavitt, and Maddox are household names, yeah, they were really good. I mean, there's no doubt about it. First ballot Hall of Famers, all three, but they played on winning teams. I mean, they were always in the playoffs. They were always in the postseason. As a baseball fan, toward the end of the year, with, with the pennant chases, you never, ever didn't see the Braves featured as one of the games. And it was always give the ball to Glavin, give the ball to Maddox, give the ball to Smoltz. Um, and I, I still believe, yeah, I mean, they were first ballot Hall of Famers, period. But them playing in so many postseason games as they did, it, it just enhanced their Hall of <laughs> Not Fame Not winning enough resume. world championships, Well, I mean, they should have won – well, we had a question. I think it's a very legitimate question. Is it a bigger fluke that the Braves have won one championship with this team or they only won one with the, the, the other teams they had that featured that trifecta of starting pitching as its nucleus and core? And um, I've always said, you know, Mattis, Glavin, Smoltz, and whomever. I mean, I could throw the fourth game. Rev, you could throw the fifth game. We'd still win yep. 60% of the baseball games. And we said yesterday 60% equates to about 97 wins per season that gets you in the hunt enough for baseball you ready congratulations to anybody that had anything to do with the debate last night and i mean that sincerely i've never had it so easy i mean i show up like a rock star in the back door i come briefcase in hand sit down two mics one on either side by the way um, i'm looking dapper too by the way no well, of course i, yeah. I cleaned made, up a little you, bit you dressed up for the event i did i was impressed Rented it. I, I had it back <laughs> I, i've got until 11 this morning to have it back so i said i get off the air 10 i'll have it back by 11 i was going to ask you some details about your suit but uh i prob- probably it's not it's know. not a suit it's men's hardware okay there comes a point that it becomes I it's not a suit see, it, it's men's know. hardware i'm so far removed from that i don't i have any clue okay but you, you look, you look sharp. I, I got to tell well, you. Thank you. I had a, I had a, a job to do, I, a performance to make. Yeah. And uh, I, I told Rev during the last break. He said, um, "How much longer you want to go?" And I said, "I want to revisit the, this central issue." See, you're kind of joking around. Oh yeah. Um, because it got a little bit spatty 
I mean, mm-hmm. it got a little bit testy at times. Um, contentiousness, but but not, you know, uh, what about the, the word they used last night? So, I mean, it, civil. it was not, yeah, it's civil. I mean, it was civil, they, they but, wanted civility, but contentious. But, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, they wanted civility. I'm not sure. I was a big fan of civility last night. Um, but no, the, these um these two ladies running for superintendent of education, I think both acquitted themselves well. Um, it's kind of interesting. The superintendent of education has this um, built-in voting block, but the majority of them ain't Republicans. You know, it's kind of a um the, the balancing act of not offending teachers. But befriending teachers, believing that you're going to go do that job as their advocate, understanding that voting basis, a little like if a Republican candidate goes into a to a chamber meeting and speaks to a bunch of CEOs and business owners, he's speaking the language of their world. He's a Republican. The majority of those folks naturally are inclined to vote Republican. Uh, they're free enterprise advocates. They, you know what I mean? They live in the capital market. They, they, they run a business. They don't want regulation. They don't want all these other things. So there's a um, there's a very easy way to thread that needle. I mean, I, I remember as a Republican candidate walking to a business meeting, and I'm like, okay, I'm at home now. I mean, I'm with um, kindred spirits. Um, but when you run as a Republican for superintendent of education, um, you've got to accept the reality that most teachers don't vote Republican. I mean, uh, in, it's it's about 50, uh, some believe it's 55% Democrat, about 25% uh, Republican, and about 20 or so percent call themselves independent. So I mean, that's kind of the Pew Research and Gallup numbers. Um, we believe, in some of the exit polling, we believe that Clinton beat uh, Trump about 55 to 27 or 8%. So it's it's not two to one, but there's a substantial advantage if you're a Democrat trying to garner the support of teachers. And, and it really goes back to some of what we argued about yesterday with the um, with, with someone who listens to us and, and puts something on twi- uh, twi- uh, Twitter, uh, what am I trying? Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. A tweet on Twitter that said um, that was the dumbest thing that, that you know I've ever said over the airwaves, and obviously that's not the dumbest thing I've said over the airwaves because we could do a top two hundred <laughs> of dumb things we've said over the airwaves and leave another two hundred out. Um, I mean the list could be eternal and in perpetuity because I'll say something dumb in the next three and a half hours uh, <laughs> before before we get off off the air. But um, th- we were arguing about who should be in charge of reforming education. And that was what the debate was about last night. You know, you've got, and then let's be candid, you've got a a candidate who sounds <sighs> informed about how to best reform education, and you've got another who, just in my humble opinion, is very uh, intellectually sound, understands the world of education, but but you wonder how serious she is about reform. and And as a reformer, as someone who believes that public education needs disruptive forces, I'm probably more inclined um, to, to, I don't know, to be a fan of what Ellen says than I am what Kathy says. Once again, I think both are competent. I think both are well-prepared. I think you would agree. Both came mm-hmm. to the debate last night no with a it. plethora of notes. I mean, it, I, I didn't have room to put my, you know, <laughs> my um, little bit of notes and, and homework I'd done because um, they had an abundance. I mean, it was like, it's like studying for a final. Well, I've heard. It's like studying for a final. I hear that there <laughs> are people out there like. that study like that. Uh, I don't have any idea because uh, I sat behind Eileen. Anyway, and, and she always made good grades. <laughs> and the coaches didn't care if you if your if your eyes kind of um you know spanned the the room. I mean, yeah, okay. I think coaches encouraged athletes to sit near really smart people because um, they knew we needed help. 
the, the old dumb jock theory. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'll always set aside. Um, anyway, at the coach's <laughs> encouragement, you got to stay eligible, Riff. You got to stay in the game some I way, somehow. So. Um, so, so, anyway, last night, the debate to me, and I'd love to hear from listeners who happen to, to hear or watch, um, it sounded to me like um, both candidates understand the Republican primary voter wants change. They want reform. They want something to be done about South Carolina being ranked 48th in American public education year after year after year after year. Um, one candidate, to me, sounded a little more um, confident in articulating that point of view. And, and I can tell you why. Because they believe, that candidate believes, it's Helen Weaver. I mean, she believes that she can lose the teachers and win the Republican primary voters. Um, Kathy Manus believes that the best way to win is to continue to endear herself to these large group or this large group of teachers who have a personal motivation to come vote in the runoff. I mean, we're not, why, let me ask you this. Would a teacher be as compelled to come back next Tuesday for the runoff, this coming Tuesday for the runoff to elect us, uh, you know, a superintendent of uh, agriculture or a commissioner mm-hmm. of agriculture? No, of course they wouldn't, but they're going to the polls next Tuesday to elect someone is going to oversee their employment opportunities, their, their, you know, the, the business of which they're in. And that seems to me uh, to be where we are. Now, now, I'm texting last night back and forth with um, <sighs> political junkies, you know, about what they saw, what they perceived, what they, in fact, they text me too late because I turned my phone on <laughs> silent. They don't have to get up at 430 <laughs> as we do here at Wake Up Carolina. Um, so I turned my phone off at about 945 or 10 um <laughs> just said uh, well i'll handle that tomorrow but they wanted to talk and debate and and pontificate on whatever you know uh the mood of the night was but but you know you asked me earlier who i thought did the best mm-hmm. i think they both did well it's just one's trying to convince republican primary voters that i'm the change agent the other's trying to convince uh republican primary voters don't be afraid of me but the loyalties lie to the teachers and that's, I mean, you're nodding your head. I mean, did you sense that's some exactly, of that? Yeah, that's exactly the way I'd interpret it. Yeah, and um, and that's kind of a, um, both have difficult needles to thread. Ellen's got to figure out a way to win and lose the majority of I mean, of it's an interesting dichotomy. When but you, it's a very interesting dichotomy like because your base, those most interested and at risk in this uh, office, well, I say at risk, that uh, their job depends upon how the superintendent of education, how they do their job. Let's rephrase that. How they do their job depends on what sort of agenda the secretary, superintendent of education puts forth. Um, so they're going to be highly inclined to come back Tuesday and vote. So a lower percentage of those who voted for Russell Fry or Tom Ross or Barbara Arthur are coming back Tuesday, a higher percentage of teachers, um, if that weren't the case, I think Weaver wins because I think she's more in step with the Republican primary voter, but you've got a bunch of teachers that are going to come back Tuesday to vote for Manus because they perceive her to be the candidate that will do right by them. And one thing's for sure, both candidates had their group of vocal supporters in the room. You you had teachers on one side and you had Moms for Liberty on the other side. It was kind of an interesting, you're right, a dichotomy. The the dichotomy was very interesting Mm -hmm. on one side and and one corner. It's almost like when you walked in, friend of the broom, uh, excuse me, friend of the bride or friend of the groom. Um, uh, Are you a teacher? Okay, you go to this side. Or Mom for Liberties. I know what side uh, you're on here. And choice is the central figure. I mean, how do we bring competition into the marketplace of education? I can tell you how. You bring choice to public education. We must embrace 
choice in public education, and they give these feathery and fluffy answers. But at the end of the day, the question I asked, and Ellen, I mean, excuse me, Kathy still didn't answer it. Um, should public funds be spent in private school education? I mean, that's the crux of the matter. I mean, we, we can debate, uh, I'm for choice, I'm for magnets, I'm for charters, I'm for that. That is choice, no doubt. But but the, the line of demarcation is, should we or should we not allow public funds to be spent as vouchers? Remember, um, Ellen said, put the money on the backpack. I mean, that's where I am. Give the money to the kid. Let the family and the kid make a decision about where they believe they can become best educated, what school best suits their needs. Um, but that is taking public money out of public education and putting it in to private school coffers. Uh, what sort of accountability measures do we have? What sort of metrics and measures do we hold private schools accountable for? Um, and, you know, a lot of people say that's extreme. I don't think it's extreme at all. I mean, I really don't. I think it's more extreme for someone to send their kid to public, excuse me, send their kid to private school while paying taxes to fund public school. I mean, to me, that's the extreme position. My kids are going to private school, but I'm still getting dinged. 70% of my ad valorem property tax is going to public schools. Um, that seems pretty radical to me. Let's take a break. We've got a caller. We'll get there on the other side. 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937. Callers lining up early this morning. Let's go there. Carl in the PD. Good morning, Carl. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, Carl. Ken, I got a question for you. Yes, sir. You always do. I have a couple, couple of questions. <laughs> One, is school choice the main uh, thing we're voting on? It is with Republican. When you look at the polling with Republican primary voters, choice is choice seems to be the only issue that stays near the top. Now, security and safety and and all of that is a big deal right now. But yeah, for the past four, five, six election cycles, as it relates to education, choice, the debate on choice has been probably the only issues that stays at the top. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch. Your um your questions, but I here's the question uh, your debate because I know you do, did a good job. Um, which schools do you think? And I don't know if you asked them this, but I would have asked them this. Um, which schools do you think the Hellraisers in these public schools are going to choose to attend? And then which schools do you think that the drug addicts in these schools are going to choose to attend? Because those, if you ask me, those are probably the two groups that um, are causing all the heartburn that you are, are having where test scores are concerned as well as safety of you know, people at the school and the reason that people don't want to send their kids to public schools are the hellraisers and the drug addicts. The so discipline. What, 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 what schools are they going to choose to go to? Well, but if I were running for superintendent of education, I would have a system of which those kids didn't, they weren't allowed to be in what I call normal schools. We'd have, I mean, the old terminology would be reform schools. We'd have some place set aside for kids who've been continually disruptive, um, you know, have disciplinary issues. We would have, you know, a certain facility, a certain educational facility set aside from the normal, the normal student relate or student um, experience that, um, that kids who, never have been able to exhibit consistency and discipline or behavior, they'd be, they'd be somewhere other than in our public schools. But isn't that the argument that most parents who, or most people who talk about school choice is, are making is that the schools are just 
not good environments because, you know, essentially those kids are there, the hell raisers and the drug addicts. Well, I mean, I I, I get that. That's a valid argument. My argument's always been, why should I be forced to send my kid to a public school of their choice? Why don't I have a right as a taxpayer to send my kid to the public school of my choice? Why are boundaries and neighborhoods subjected to, you know, zoning and planning and all, you know, this is in this district and that's in that district. I I don't want to send my kid to this school. I want to send my kid to that school because I think it suits him better. Um, It's on the way to work. I mean, there there are a lot of different reasons. And I've always felt when the government draws lines and because you live here, you must send your kid to that school. um, I think we need to expand those opportunities. And we've done a decent job recently with magnet schools and charter schools. Um, But but I I just believe, I mean, I'm fundamentally, I think the money should follow the kid. The $12,360 we spend per pupil in South Carolina should be basically given to the family in the kind of a voucher. And that family makes the decision that they believe is in the best interest of that kid. Can't argue with that, Ken. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it. Um, if he could, he would. I'll assure, I'll assure you of that. Uh, let's go to the phone. Someone else is there. Next is Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. Hey, guys. Good morning. I actually got a chance to listen to some of the debate last night, and um, it didn't take long for me to figure out when I hear someone say, my opponent wants to take money away from the public schools, uh, who is catering to the status quo and who wants things to change. Uh, I, I thought, well, that's about all I needed to hear. Um, I also know that it has long been uh, in the Democrat Dirty Plea Book 101, do everything you can to disqualify a superior candidate if you don't think you can beat them at the poll. So I thought it was interesting that one of them wanted to get on them about, you know, well, you're not even qualified. And, and her answer was, well, I, I don't need to be just yet, <laughs> uh, but I have that under control. But she was really trying hard to say, well, you can't vote for her because uh, she shouldn't even be on the ballot. I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of somebody who feels like they might be losing. But uh, to Carl's point, uh, you know, yes, behavior is some of it, but it's, it's also as someone who decided to pay thousands and thousands of dollars and, and, and live a much lower lifestyle than he deserved to. <clears throat> uh, I, uh, I sent my kids to private school and uh, until the last two years. But it really wasn't, my concern wasn't over behavior. It was over indoctrination. It was over, you know, what are they teaching without teaching? Curriculum is very important. Uh, what is presupposed in the you know, when if, if you're reading a math problem and it says Janie has six apples and Billy takes five, how many does she have left? And one says Janie has six apples and Johnny has five, how many do they have left? It gets confusing. But those little things creep into curriculum. Who's going to be looking at our curriculum? Who's going to be, you know, watchdogging? what's slipping in under the radar, it's not just what they overtly teach, it's what they covertly teach. And, you know, selection of pronouns and all that does creep into even South Carolina's curriculum. Um, Whether or not they're going to teach the founding as something that is to be admired or something that is to be reviled is also on my mind. It's way more than just some bad kids because 
when kids get kicked out of public schools for being too bad, guess where they show up? If their parents have enough money, they show up in private school. That was never really my concern. My concern was always, what are they teaching my children and, and what's slipping in under the radar? Because I can't read every textbook. I'm too busy. Well, explain. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate the call. And I'll tell you, that's a bit inspirational to me. Um, Carl and Larry's phone calls are back-to-back. And what they've exhibited consistently on this show and many others have is uh, an intellectual understanding of the, the issue we're talking about and, and the fearless nature of which they discuss these things. We need smart people who aren't afraid. I mean, that's the only hope we got, whether it's education, whether it's taxes, what, what, I mean, just government in general. The, the only way America gets to a better place, our government is not going to lead us to a better place. The only people on this planet that can save America's future are smart people who aren't afraid to say what they believe. And when, when Carl calls, I mean, we have disagreements. Larry and I have disagreements. Of course we have disagreements. But, but, but people who take the time to intellectually understand the issues that government is involved in, very intimately in our lives, and are, are, n- are not afraid to speak their mind openly and candidly about what they believe and why they believe it. That is our hope. I mean, that, that is the only hope we have. If we are to change the trajectory of this country, that's how it's going to happen. It's not going to be whether teachers are unionized or not. It's not going to be whether we allow a kid to go to this school or not. I mean, th- th- those are part and parcel to the argument. But, but w- when I hear these callers who have dedicated a certain degree of their time to better understand these issues, now it's kids. I mean, I've got kids. Uh, I know the investment you try to make in your kids and when Larry says, you know, my family decided to live a little less um, quality of life, I think a little bit, you know, sarcasm there, but and, uh, we made sacrifices. There you go. My family decided to make sacrifices so my kids could go to the school of our choice. But they're still funding a school they didn't send their kid to. Something's wrong with that. Something's a bit un-American about that. Um, and I think we've got to address that. I think whatever that number is, we give that number in a voucher to that family, and we let that family make a decision on behalf of that kid and where they believe he could be best educated. I just never, well, I mean, I'm kind of an anti-authoritarian. I don't like authority. I mean, I've never liked authority. So some of the lashes on my back are because I never had respect for authority. I don't like anybody telling me what to do, especially somebody with no skin in the game. I don't like anybody, you know, designing rules and regulations and stipulations, the bylaws of which uh, force me to live a certain way. I mean, I, I still believe that as, 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 as diverse as the founders were, I mean, and, and a lot of us believe there was a bunch of Christian folk. No, it wasn't. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of people that got together, you know, and formed a country. But the one thing they had in common, they took their liberties and freedoms very seriously. I mean, that, that they, were, they were almost all dedicated to that political belief or or ideology and, and and we've allowed our government to erode our liberties and freedoms to a point we should be ashamed of i mean I, and i mean that and i think the reason we've allowed that to happen goes back to what i began this this conversation about we're not we don't spend the time in lecture we have the capability and we're able to do this we just don't do it because we've got a lot of other stuff that we do and we go along and get along because that's kind of the easy thing to do condition to conformity is what I've kind of um, branded it as. But I, I've just never liked the idea. Because I live in this neighborhood, the government says I must send my kid to this um, this school. 
And that, that's bizarre to me. That's absurd to me. And I've gotten asked for waivers and requests. You got to lie about where you live. You got to buy a lot in a different neighborhood just to qualify so your kid can go. Uh, I live in a neighborhood where my kid is forced to go to a failing school. You don't believe it's failing? Check the measures. Check the metrics. But but if I buy a lot over here, if I spend hundred grand and buy a lot, I could all of a sudden get, send my kid to a better public school. Screw that. I mean, the absurdity of that, we should all be deeply offended and bothered by that. Take the 12633, put it in a voucher, give it to the family, let that family make a determination where they want that kid to go to school. If the school's 15 grand, they've got to come up with three grand or 2,500 or whatever the difference is. We, we got to stop forcing, we got to stop allowing government to dictate the terms and conditions of what, how we and where we educate our kids. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Hi, Dale. Good morning, guys. You know, Ken, the first thing you brought up is what my mind keeps coming back to is if you are the CEO of the 48th best company out of 50, what's your what's your job expectancy there? I mean, you're not going to be around very long if you're, you know, you're, the company that you run is 48th and out of a marketplace of 50 companies. These school principals, you know, I, I, I kind of equate them to, to, to a store manager. Your store does crap, you're, you're, you're going to get fired. And yet we have these principals in these schools that have been in these failing schools that have been there for a long time. Uh, you know, you're not on the money. We treat it more like a business. Everything seems to fall in place. And the kids, you know, the actual important thing, the kids' education gets done in a better way, in a more effective way. Uh, nobody holds these teachers' feet to the fire. You know, why, why don't we have cameras in classrooms where these problems are occurring with these, you know, we, we talked about drug addicts and, 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 and rowdy kids. Why don't we have cameras in these classrooms? We, we want our police officers to have cameras. Well, these teachers are... are, are shaping the lives of our children and they don't want us to know in what way they're shaping their lives why is that what do you got to hide teachers why don't you want us to see how well you teach is there a reason why you don't want us to see how well you teach a lot of uh, questions need answers guys you have a good weekend thank you dale appreciate it and then one thing i've said i don't say teachers I mean, we're talking to very generic, uh, the, the teachers. Uh, there are good teachers and bad teachers. I mean, at AA Builders, at my family business, there were good welders and bad welders. That There were employees who showed up every day on time and some who never were on time. And, and I think when we say the teachers deserve, the teachers need, the, the, we should support the teachers, I, I would be good teachers' biggest fans. I would make sure good teachers are cared for, that they're paid well, that they're dealt with with respect and dignity. That when they have a, a disciplinary issue with a class, we address that in a matter-of-fact way. Good teachers deserve that. Bad teachers deserve to be fired. And despite some of the comments of, of this debate, it's hard to fire bad teachers. It's real hard to fire bad teachers because not only does it take a reason, it takes a willingness to follow up on that reason and rationale, and here comes a squabble or a, you know, a lawsuit or something else. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just think we talk too generically about teachers. There are good teachers. There are bad teachers. There are teachers in our public schools that deserve to make more money than they make. There are teachers in our public school that don't deserve to make as much 
as they're making. That's just a practical reality in any occupation. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I get in trouble with teachers when I treat teachers like all other employees. But but I'm sorry. I mean, I don't look at teaching as any more important than the plumber or the HVAC repairman or you know. I mean, they have a job to do. Some do it well. Some don't do it well. Um, educating young people, affecting and influence young people's life is critically important. It's very important. Fixing the air conditioner is too. Defending our country's borders is very important. Um, you know, digging the ditch that drains the water out of the road is equally important. I, I, I'm real careful. I've always tried to be real guarded about this job is more important than that job. And this, you know, it's essential job. And, you know, this takes uh, uh, these people deserve more pay. I think the marketplace dictates what uh, what pay is. Um, we just so distorted the marketplace with, with government policy and government you know, and, and credits and all. I mean, we, we just such, do such a lousy job of allowing um, uh, Milton Friedman, I think, said the biggest distortion force in the American economy is government. Uh, once we allowed government to kind of, um, I don't know, take its heavy hand and move some of the, the chess pieces around, we've had uh, a thousand conversations on this show and over these airwaves about that. But I get in trouble with teachers when I appear to lump them in with everybody else who goes to work every day because I do. I mean, I simply do. You signed up to do a job. Some of you do it amazingly well, and maybe you deserve money or more money. Maybe you don't. I don't, I don't have any idea. I don't know what the pay scale of a teacher is, an educator in South Carolina. But but I think some of uh, some occupations have done a good job at convincing the public, you know, um, life would be fundamentally different if we didn't do our job the way we do it. I think every job out there, your life would be fundamentally different. What if there were no HVAC repairmen? in our listening area today. I mean, what if what if there was no way to fix your air conditioner today if it was broken? Uh, what if there were no plumbers? I mean, what if you called a plumber today and he said, I, I'm, you know, I don't plumb anymore. Um, I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, I, I just think we got to be careful about, well, this um, occupation is more important than that occupation because we begin, uh, it's kind of, we, we create a caste system, whether we intend to or not. It's almost like, well, I mean, we got to take care of the teachers because of what they do. I mean, the teachers are... Um, I mean, they're more important than the guy coming in to fix that air conditioner or fix the, the plumbing there. And I've just, I've just never, ever believed that. I think teachers are important. I think we should take care of good teachers. I think we should deal with the bad ones in a way that is pretty difficult to deal with the bad ones. And I think last night, um, to me, the difference, Larry was talking about, you know, um, taking money from public education. Um, that's kind of dog whistle for I like the way things are. You know, that there's a, and, and I'm telling you, Republican nominee, and I know this because I've run statewide in South Carolina, a Republican nominee running statewide in South Carolina, every chance they get to endear themselves to teachers, they probably lost about five to 10 Republican primary voters. And, um, you know, the person running for superintendent of education, who's trying to be the teacher's candidate, air quotes here, um, is probably um, not doing as good a job at engaging the Republican primary voters rev and i were joking this morning about um you know teachers for manus i mean there were a lot of people there teachers for manus and then on the other side in this corner teachers for manus in that corner uh, moms for liberty i mean did you see a lot of those uh, shirts yeah. teachers for manus and moms for liberty they even had shirts well, yeah they did i mean it was like i'm on this team and you're on that team literally when you walked in the debate forum uh, or the venue it was um are you a friend of the bride or a friend of the groom and one group was on this side, and the other group was on that side. It's pretty obvious where these two campaigns are coming from. Um, 
the reason that the runoff runoff i mean going to vote in the primary takes motivation going to vote in a runoff takes even more and if you're a teacher you're not going to miss that for the world i mean you're just not because you're choosing the leader of your profession and occupation in said state so teachers are going to show up to vote in the in the primary now a lot of democrats will probably vote in the republican primary because uh, democrats not going to win statewide i mean i've heard through the grapevine that if ellen weaver wins the teachers will vote for the democrat candidate i mean i've heard that from several people in the business of south carolina politics um to which i'd say don't matter ain't enough teachers in south carolina to make up um i mean south carolina's plus eight and a half today it's probably plus 11 or 12 because of biden and some of the fundamental issues the the generic democrat party is having um there's just not enough teachers i mean if every teacher in south carolina voted for a democrat it's still isn't enough to get a democrat over the finish line in a in a plus eight and a half is probably a plus 11 plus 12 state it comes down to what rev what the politics come down to Math. It comes down to math. I mean, you know, that's, that's just, uh, that's just kind of where we are today. But it's obvious that, that one candidate realizes I'm not going to get the support of the majority of teachers, but I've got to get these Republican primary voters to believe it's important enough to come back one more time and try and elect a reformer as superintendent of education. Take a break. Back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661937 takes Mondays to make Friday. So how can you and Freehold be in the producer's studio for five minutes talking on the phone and there's not a call waiting? Well, you want to tell the entire secret? First of all, uh, sometimes during the break, uh, Freehold, as you call it, Mike, will need to go, you know, take a break himself and he'll ask me to watch the phones. Mm-hmm. And so when he walks out, when the phone rings, I will walk into the producer's studio and make sure that it gets answered. Okay. I've so, gathered that much. Right. I kind of see that. I mean, okay. That's right before my very eyes. Okay. And Give so, me a little more credit than that. Right, right. And so, um, well, one of, one of them was was doing a, a, a tell Ken, but he said this is not a tell Ken. Okay. All right. And the other one was trying to get a hold of uh, get a hold of you, so, but didn't want to go in the air. Okay. Fair enough. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, if the phone was tied up for the past five or six minutes, <laughs> it's Rev and Freehold talking to whomever it is they talk to for five or six minutes, and then we get to the uh, to the part of the show that really matters, and we don't have a caller right, on the, the line. lines are open now, okay. so fair enough. 866-TELL-KEN. <laughs> that is one of the numbers, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I want to go to this. Uh, first of all, let's do this. So CNN says that they are going to – Find their soul, right? CNN is going to uh, reestablish themselves as the um, the news reporting agency um, worthy of being played at airports around America. Whatever. That's well, I mean, that's what that's they, what they say. say. But whatever. So yesterday, um, Chris Licht, who is now the uh, CEO or not CEO, what is he? Uh, the president of CNN. Um, so I went back and dug a little bit on Licht because he said some things that I found a bit odd. Um, he's the former executive producer of the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. So when oh. CNN decides to find its soul, they go really? hire the former executive producer of The Lake Show with Stephen Colbert. That's all I need to know because I was a bit optimistic. I was hopeful that one of the iconic brands in news, and I think you would agree, CNN is an iconic brand in news and reporting pre-Trump. I mean, after Trump, they sold their soul to the devil or they sold their soul to anti-Trump. Um and did enormous brand damage. I mean, they lost their, their hemorrhaging uh, listener. They were in a quandary. And the quandary was, we need to beat Trump because he's so vile and vulgar. But if we beat Trump, 
we'll have to lay off half our um, staff and our ratings will plummet. So, so they were in a quandary, as we like to say, uh, on Wake Up Carolina. And Zucker loses his job, Jeff Zucker, and now they've hired Chris Licht, who was formerly of the Lake Show with Stephen Colbert. So I'm sure high-quality journalism will prevail mm-hmm. at CNN, um, the cable news network. Let's go to the phone. Is somebody there now? Yep. Okay. Yep. The lines are stacked up now, actually. We have Bert joining us in Florence. Hello, Bert. Well, see, I avoid calling during certain times because I'm just going to be on hold forever anyway. <laughs> uh, great job last night. Great job. I got to listen to it. Uh, I, I don't know. My take on it is Kathy uh, is real good at sidestepping and not answering the question, and Ellen is totally getting my vote on it. I'm going to tell you what's bothering me today, though, is this gun thing of one more step of just disarming everybody. I hope every state sues, or at least most of them, somebody's got to stop that. You know, that, that can't happen. But I'm there. there's a push through Congress right now that we should uh, use our funding to uh, further this idea of buying electric cars. That's that's about to run out, apparently. They, oh, they've, they've given given that industry enough money. But right now, they're trying to push that to go further because we have to be in competition with China. But to me, who's going to buy those cars? Leftists that want electric cars, and we're going to help pay for that? Why? So I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. I've got a good bit of information on the gun laws and some of the debate we're having about the um, the legislation. And I think the reason we're keenly aware and, and paying close attention, obviously the Second Amendment's a big deal, especially in conservative states down south in particular. But our Senator Lindsey Graham voted um, with the Democrats on this bill. I think 14 senators total voted, 14 Republican senators voted with so, the so Democrats. Does, does he politically, does he do that now knowing he does not have to be up for re-election in 2026? I, 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 I well, I mean, Lindsey's a good politician, and I would imagine Lindsey thinks he can explain it but to the thinks, voters. He thinks we're going to forget. Well, I mean, I, no, I think he believes he can explain it in a way that will be understandable. Okay. Um, waiting. Know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm Lindsay, waiting to hear. Okay, but Lindsey's done this several times in his political life as a, um, a South Carolina senator. He's made us angry, but he's had three or four years to reestablish himself. You know, when um, by God, I hope you never get power again. Remember Kavanaugh hearing. And Lindsey kind of saved his political fate and future yep. during that moment. I mean, we were all Lindsey Graham fans when he showed such emotion um, in challenging the Democrats and their attacks against uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I, I don't know what Lindsey's got up his sleeve. I don't have any idea. I, I would imagine uh, Lindsey voted the way he thinks he should have voted. Is there a trade? Is there something down the road we're not seeing here? Don't have any idea. Uh, but when you vote with Romney and Murkowski and Ryan, uh, excuse me, not Ryan, uh, uh, Romney, Murkowski, the Susan Collins, John Cornyn. Cornyn's a little bit different. Cornyn's kind of a, an independent-minded guy. But, I mean, Murkowski, uh, Collins, uh, Romney, I mean, you, you, they're not really Republicans. And, by the way, and 50 Democrats. Sure, and 50 Democrats, every single Democrat. Um, and then you've got retirees amongst the Republicans who don't have anything to lose. you got Blunt and Burr and uh, Portman in Ohio. So what does it matter to them? Um, they leave in good standing with the political establishment. Um, that's where they make their money. That's where they made their money. That's where the uh, the skid gets greased, so to speak. But when you look back at the, because um, Bert was asking about the gun law, um, 
the the bad news as far as we're concerned is what the Republicans agreed with the Democrats in in matters relating to I mean the, the gun control gun legislation uh, but then yesterday the court passed down a ruling uh, on the what is it New York State rifle versus uh, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin is it Bruin or Burn I mean it's I, I can't it's anyway it's um it might be Bruin I don't think it's Burn I think it's Bruin um, and that that basically was a challenge to a New York state law that had been on the book since 1913. I found that odd. 109 years, this has been the law in New York, but it barred residents from attaining or obtaining a carry permit uh, unless they, and here we go with legal language, you ready? Because this is in the Thomas opinion, unless they show proper cause. But that's some of the the, the legal, uh, the, the legally language, uh, proper cause require the applicant to, once again, their words, not mine, demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. Now, Thomas's um, majority opinion is very aggressive. I mean, it basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it says the Second Amendment is not a second-rate right. I mean, the Second Amendment is as, as stern and firm a right as the First Amendment. You have a right to freely express yourself. But just as much you have a right to arm yourself. And the general community is what um, Thomas pays close attention to. And he refers to the precedent case, Heller, and I think the McDonald case, um, that the, the court has held in previous cases that self-defense is the core purpose for the Second Amendment. I mean, I went back and read Scalia's Heller opinion, so articulate. Wow. I mean, it's like poetry. It's like something Jefferson would write. But in the Scalia opinion... He makes it crystal clear that the Second Amendment is not about shooting snakes while you're uh, fishing or bird hunting or whatever. I mean, it, it is a it is a matter of self-defense. And as a member of the general community, and I'm going to Thomas's words now, as a member of the general community, you do not have to ever demonstrate a special need. Um, you are entitled to keep and bear arms per the Second Amendment. And the New York State law was a direct violation of of that the new york state law basically said you got to prove to us why you need a gun and if you and, and once you state your case we may go talk to your neighbor in other words if you say hey man there are these bad dogs in my neighborhood or uh, you know a team of wild rabid rottweilers and dobermans are running wild in my neighborhood and my kid plays outside so i need a gun you go to the new york state board or whoever association oversees this and you express that desire you have to arm yourself in the name of protection. They have a right to go to your neighbor and say, is he lying or not? And Thomas says, that's absurd. But that, that's no, that's no, we're the, I mean, we have a precedent here because he referred to the Heller case in, in some of his um, majority opinion, and it was so aggressively written. I mean, it really was. It's almost like Thomas said, you know, I'm tired of being quiet. I'm tired of not having much uh, to say, and he spoke so powerful, powerfully, so profoundly, um, and liberals in la-la land, I mean, they reacted as you would expect them to react. There was no expansion of gun rights. I mean, the, the, even the less liberal media, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about reputable voices on the left. They've even said it was an expansion of gun rights. It was a preservation of gun rights. It was a constitutionally afforded gun right, and they're just preserving and stopping the erosion of these gun rights, but um, but it, but it, 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 he refers to the Heller case 
and, and he talks a lot about due process. He talks a lot about equal protection. Um, and that leads me to what the Senate did yesterday. And I don't know how that stands the test of court. I mean, the, the, I, I, if this case ever, if what the, 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 the Senate did yesterday, the Congress will follow suit, uh, the House of Representatives, and then the president will sign in law, and we'll have stricter gun legislation. We'll have more red flag laws. But, but on the same day that the Supreme Court makes this ruling, now the Roberts concurrence opinion proves to me that we better thank God in heaven. If you're a conservative and you believe in the Constitution, you better thank God in heaven that Donald Trump had a chance to appoint three justices to the U.S. Supreme Court because Roberts is not dependable, period. I mean, not only did George W. Bush put Roberts on the Supreme Court, he made him chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And when you read the concurring opinion, because he voted in the majority, 6-3 ruling, uh, Roberts votes in the majority, but he wrote a concurrence that is so watered down, extremely watered down, and that concerns me. Mm. I mean, you know, Barrett, Gorsuch, and uh, and Kavanaugh were the three Trump appointees. And Gorsuch, excuse me, Kavanaugh still worries me a bit. I, I mean, I, I, in a weird kind of way, and you see I say these crazy things. Here's something else crazy. Kavanaugh reminds me too much of a frat boy to be trusted when, when, it, when it's time to make a real, real difficult call. It's easy to make a call when you know it's 6-3. When you know the chief justice is going your way, when you know Thomas is going to storm the building, so to speak, it's kind of easy to play along uh, with that. But what is Kavanaugh going to do when there's a tremendously consequential decision to be made and it looks like he is the swing vote? I mean, I trust Barrett. I trust Gorsuch. I'm not sure I trust Kavanaugh. I know damn well I don't trust Roberts. (laughs) I mean, Roberts ain't one of them, but he ain't one of us. I mean, I, I guess his legacy, he wants his legacy to be uh, the Roberts court was not a conservative court nor a liberal court. It was a very cerebral and measured and moderate court. And we know uh, what he did with the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, mean, they don't build statues for people who are perceived to be extreme in Washington. They just don't. I mean, and I think Roberts is real concerned about his legacy, uh, you know, what the courts will be like. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, kind of conflicting emotions about guns. You've got the Senate doing what it is they did yesterday, and 14 Republicans agreeing and voting with the Democrats. But you've got this aggressively written opinion of uh, Justice Thomas, 6-3 decision. And, and there, there are parallels here. There are some synergies here between uh, the, the New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin and what will eventually be, uh, you know, once we legislate and it becomes law of the land when the president signs this. In, in, I mean, I think it's a violation of due process. I think it's a violation of equal protection under the law. Uh, you, you're looking at We'll get into this in a second. Uh, Reason Magazine had a real interesting libertarian-leaning article about um, the, um, the legislation and the 80 pages. That we'll kind of delve into that in a second. But... Um, but the courts, and, and I want to I add this. Let's go to the phone. I want to be respectful of our caller's time. Let's go there. Rodney in Florence. Hello, Rodney. Fellas just called to say, job well done last night. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Very kind of you, and I enjoyed doing that um, job last night. Appreciate the call. Thank you for the... Other, two more things. Sure. Go Clarence Thomas, and how about them damn braids? 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. Um, I can get behind that. Yeah, the Braves and Clarence Thomas That's had right. a good day. A good day yesterday. The Braves winning what? 15, uh, lost to the Cubs 2 of 3, but won 3 of 4 against the, the Giants. They're, they're on yeah. a run. I mean, there's yeah, no doubt about four it. Four games back. And then yeah. I would encourage you. I mean, if, if you, you know, a lot of you call and say, I'm passionate about the Second Amendment. I believe in the Second Amendment. You don't mean it unless you read the Thomas opinion. I mean it. I mean, you, you got to go read that. Um, and how aggressively worded, uh, he, and, and once again, I'm paraphrasing, I might read the opinion, but he says that, that modern, um, he doesn't say woke elite society, but he infers that, but, but the modern woke elitism that he finds so disgusting as most of us, most of us do, um, has, has convinced a lot of Americans that the second amendment is kind of a second rate, right? You know how those rabble rousers are. You know how those hayseeds are. You know how those damn gun owners are. But I mean, they're always wanting to fight about something and argue about something. And he says that the Second Amendment is exactly, it's as pristine as any of the amendments. It's as, it's, it's, it, it should be defended with, with the vigor of any of these other amendments. And once again, um, the Thomas um, majority opinion and the ruling of the court is basically um, – Supporting the previous Heller decision in that self-defense is the core purpose of the Second Amendment and members of the general uh, community, not just those who have to demonstrate this special need, uh, are entitled to keep and bear arms. In, in other words, you don't have a lot of explaining to do if you want to keep and bear arms. I mean, that, you know, we've got red flag laws, and I'll read it here in a second. If you don't believe South Carolina has a red flag law, I had someone send me a, um, an excerpt from the uh, state's constitution. I mean, you know, our legislature has put red flag laws in place, and I would imagine there will be a, a redressing of this issue by liberals who find out, okay, we can attack the Second Amendment that way. Maybe we can do it. And that's what I get so frustrated about the 14 Republicans. They played into the hands of the way the liberals will begin attacking uh, the Second Amendment. Now, now, something interesting to me, and yesterday I read where a liberal on Twitter had something to say um, about regulating, about, you know, the constitutional limits, that the courts basically decided that the states can't dictate the terms and conditions of which the Second Amendment is regulated. Well, I mean, I think the courts are being uh, pragmatic about it. I think the courts have given the states some leeway um, about what they can and cannot do, but but they tried to argue that the Republicans, the conservatives, want abortion regulated by the states, but not gun rights. Well, here's the difference. Um, the Constitution explicitly protects your right to keep and bear arms. It says absolutely nothing about abortion. So to compare abortion and the right to keep and bear arms, and that's what liberals did yesterday. Well, you know, those Republicans, they like it when states get to say what's legal or not in abortion matters. Well, I mean, but, but, but gun ownership is different. Well, I mean, there, there is no amendment to the Constitution that, that speaks on abortion. I mean, if you want to amend the Constitution that said every woman should have a right to have an abortion, uh, at, at whichever time she chooses, that, then, you know, ask for the Constitution to be amended. But stop comparing abortion to the Second Amendment. You're making yourself appear foolish and desperate to serious people. Um, one closing remark on this. It's not just the New York State rifle and pistol association this rule also applies to gun legislation you ready in california in hawaii in maryland in massachusetts in new jersey and in rhode island even freehold new jersey i think this rule applies so um so yeah the the the, the, the lawsuit was triggered by an event in new york 
but it affects and basically overturns gun legislation in not only New York, but California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. But the Democrats aren't done. They're not going to rest easy until they erode the Second Amendment to a point that you and I have to go through a literal act of Congress to own a weapon, and 14 Republicans saddled up and helped in that movement. That's discouraging. Take a break. Back in a minute. There's one line here I want you to remember, and it's um, it's a dissenting opinion. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote a dissent, and basically, I want to read his words. Um, he accused the majority opinion of deciding the case, his words, not mine, without discussing the nature or severity of gun violence. I mean, Breyer in his dissenting opinion, why does that matter? Why does it matter, Ken, that, that Breyer would say without dissenting the nature, or excuse me, without discussing the nature or severity of gun violence? Breyer believes he's a legislator. I mean, he believes it's his job to solve gun crime. He believes it's his job to legislate from the bench. I mean, he just lets you know exactly what perspective he's coming from. He doesn't refer to the Constitution. It doesn't matter what the law says. Breyer sees gun crimes, and he is not a Supreme Court justice. He is a legislator. I mean, he is a legislator as a member, and he looks at the court as a legislative body, and if I see things I don't like, I don't care what the court says. Guys, that's liberal America today. I mean, it, the, the, the yard marker moves every single day. It's abortion one day. It's gun control the next day. It's taxes another day. And the Constitution means absolutely nothing to these people. That they would usurp the Constitution. They would tear it up and throw it in the trash today, tomorrow, and the next day. And one of the highest-ranking Democrats— in America, just exposed himself for exactly what they want to happen without discussing the nature or severity of gun violence. That's not a dissenting opinion. That's a campaign speech. I mean, the justices should wow, be bound right. to, to, to the obligations of adhering to the Constitution, but they don't like the Constitution. So when your job is to adhere to the Constitution, if I had to wake up every day and eat broccoli, meals would suck. <laughs> So, so these guys wake up these liberal, um, th- these liberal judges. They're really liberal legislators uh, disguising themselves as judges. They wake up every day having to eat broccoli, and that broccoli is the Constitution. That they're forced to adhere to the Constitution because that's their job, and they don't like it at all. They despise the fact that those, you know, th- th- those bedrocks are so important to this country and its existence and its prosperity and its history um now, now alito responded in his concurring opinion to to the um some of what Breyer had to say why for example here's alito why for example does the dissent think it's relevant to recount the mass shootings that have occurred in recent years um here here's the the story about um this the, the law in the senate I'm, I'm trying to converse the two issues and i know i'm getting them a little bit confusing here um the New York law did not stop. I mean, imagine this now. The New York law, the most aggressive gun law in America. You've got to prove that you deserve to own a gun. I mean, that's been law of the land in New York City. You've got to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're in imminent threat, your life is in danger, and that's why you need a gun. Where did the Buffalo shooting happen? In New York. I mean, what, what city is Buffalo in? What state is Buffalo in? It's in New York. The New York law didn't stop an 18-year-old from buying a gun and killing 10 people in a, in a grocery store in Buffalo. 
criminals and people who have the intent to hurt other people don't care how many laws we have. They've never cared how many laws we have. We could stack the laws to the sky. And if someone is a criminal and has malicious intent, they are going to end around or, or, or avoid whatever laws there are on the books. And I think Alito makes a good example. But, but Breyer shows you exactly who he is. He's a legislator wearing a black robe calling himself a judge. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here's John in Florence. Good morning, John. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, sir. I just uh, I wanted I wanted to talk about uh, just talk about Lindsey Graham uh, real quick with him signing on signing on to the bill. Um, I think that he needs to get the Tom uh, Tom Rice treatment uh, regarding signing on regarding signing on to that. Um, I, I specifically remember him getting on Fox News and begging a dollar off of everybody um, this past election cycle uh, based on his how he worked in the work to get Kavanaugh uh, on the Supreme Court, and he did exactly the opposite by signing on this bill. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. All I can say is Lindsey's had a love-hate relationship with South Carolina primary voters since he's been in politics, and the son of a gun wins every time he runs. I mean, you know, I understand the frustration. I'm frustrated with Lindsey today. I think that's a Mm. bad vote. I'd love for Lindsey to come on and discuss why he believed that was the best vote. Maybe explains and convinces me that, that my rationale doesn't make any sense. But I, I just, I'm always nervous when you vote with Romney and Collins and, and Portman and, and some of these retiree. I mean, it, I, I don't and understand. And all of the Democrats. And all the Democrats. You're right. Uh, but you know what they are. I mean, you know, give them credit. They don't break ranks. I mean, they don't. They don't help you do anything. Um, that they're there. And it's almost like, you know, m- maybe Lindsey is – I, I, a creature of the establishment in that he's been there for a long time and he believes the playbook has always been i mean america first demands more of republicans america first republicans are sent there to do things not just stop the democrats from doing things but but you know in traditional political times i think the frustration with republicans by republican primary voters has been you guys don't do anything i mean instead of them throwing an 80 yard touchdown pass you give them a 25 yard first down I mean, that's kind of the way I look at it. Okay, we stopped the 80-yard bomb for a touchdown, but they still got a 20-yard completion, and it's still first and 10. I mean, the Democrats got more of what they wanted. When have the Republicans, led by the Republican establishment, ever got a little bit of what they wanted? I mean, help me understand that. I mean, it's supposed to be a give and take. I mean, compromise is not losing, and losing is not compromising. The Republican establishment looks at losing. I mean, you and I would call it losing. They call it compromising. But, but the truth is, there are more gun laws today, or there will be when the president signs this into law, there will be more gun laws today that inhibit or affect your right to keep and bear arms than there was before this legislation was passed. And I just, I, I don't think that's where the Republican Party needs to be. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The, the thing I like about Thomas's uh, opinion is, it's so simplistic. I mean, he lays it out that you don't have to justify the right to not uh, incriminate yourself. You don't have to justify that. You don't have to justify, you know, not being representative in in court. You don't have to justify what religion you want to go in. 
So why do you have to justify the need for a concealed weapon permit? And that's what this was all about. Justifying the Second Amendment, that's an extra constitutional uh, differential in it and every other amendment. And and the liberals, the opinion is so simple, they can't wrap their heads around it. I mean, they're out there talking about, oh, no, all these people are going to be in a bar with guns, and, 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 and that's the first thing they go to, not knowing that it is illegal to go into a bar drinking with a concealed weapons permit. You know, they said last night there's less crime committed by concealed weapons permit holders than crime by police officers. Now, that that's amazing. So it's not about the guns. The only thing Lindsay was looking at was there was no bans on AR-15s, assault weapons, all that stuff, and there was money for South Carolina. And that's what he'll tout. But as long as we keep a Republican governor and a Republican legislature, these red flag laws really won't affect South Carolina. But like I said the other day, the Democrats play the long game. I remember Jim Clyburn saying something after some bill was passed, and somebody asked him a question, well, this might happen. He said, oh, no, no, we just stuck that in a bill where that can't happen. And nobody knew anything about it. So that's what they do. They play the long game, hoping they can turn everything over. And then all of a sudden we get a Democrat governor that says, okay, red flag laws, we're going to go out and take all your guns. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. The one concerning part of the legislation, I mean, we're getting these things mixed up, but I think they, they are kind of one in the same. You've got a Supreme Court ruling that advances gun rights. You've got a Senate bill that impedes or hinders gun rights. Um, the one thing when I read, and I've, I've not read all 80 pages. I did read the Thomas, you know, majority opinion. I have read Roberts's, um, consent, but when I read, uh, I got actually highlighted here. Um, it seems to me now, once again, I'd love to have Lindsay here, but it seems to me that there's a chance the, if you interpret the language in this bill, the way that I interpret it, it will affect impact, even cancel the gun rights of adults based on juvenile records. I mean, we know it subsidizes state laws. Um, and, and I think some of the state laws suspend or violate the rights you have without due process. I mean, you have a right, uh, equal protection and law due process. I'm talking about legal language here now. But it looks to me like that your juvenile record follows you as an adult as it relates to buying a weapon. In other words, if you as a 15-year-old did something real stupid, and as a 30-year-old, you want to go buy a gun, you're going to have to explain what you did as a 15-year-old. And it may or may not affect you getting a gun. Uh, that's concerning to me. That's alarming to me because we've expunged a lot of records. And, and you know, and, and the juvenile I mean, kids do stupid things. We know that. Um, now, I think 18 to 20-year-olds have a legitimate gripe about equal protection. You know, you're looking at a 19 or 20-year-old fundamentally different. You're applying a different set of rules to an adult. I'm an adult who begins at 18. So, so an adult that can go fight for our country, um, if he goes and tries to buy a gun, he's treated differently than someone who's 22 or 23 years old, completely different than someone 22 or 23-year-old. And I just think, to me, the way I interpret the, the Equal Protection Clause in the 5th and 14th Amendment, 
that is a direct violation of that, and um, and you're doing it without due process. I, I, that's just that's a bit odd to me, a bit bizarre to me, and I think I think there'll be a pending lawsuit at some point in time by some gun rights activist or some gun right you know gun owner, um, someone who uh, somebody initiated the case in New York, and I got to believe somebody will eventually initiate a case against this this legislation. I love and I, and I mean this. If anybody out there knows Lindsay, get him to call. Maybe one day next week, Mike. We'll see if we can run Lindsay down. Work on that, and I've got. I want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, he, he, to me, he owes us an explanation. Take a break. Back in a minute. I think this is the very valid part of the argument, and um, I mean, I think this should be debated. I'm not sure it was because they got the bill, and an hour later they voted on the bill or required the vote on the bill. Uh, there may be cases where checking juvenile records would block gun sales that may or may not save lives. I mean, th- th- there may be a case out there when. When someone checks their juvenile records, um, that blocks a gun sale, that stops a mass murder. But but the general principle has been in America that people who commit crimes as minors, um, those records don't follow them for the rest of their lives. They, they're, they're not treated, uh, they're not disparaged as adults because of what they did when they were a 15 or 16-year-old. That, that's a legitimate debate. I mean, should, should we... Uh, in the normal way of um, conducting ourselves, we've said, okay, what you did as a kid will not be held against you. Stop you from getting a job. Stop you joining the Army. Stop you going to a certain college or whatever. Um, historically, that's what we've done. But but some of this legislation, I mean, it could. I mean, th- there's a chance if we, if we coordinate some of this record keeping that we stop, a, you know, a, someone from buying a gun as a 19-year-old that was um, in violation of whatever, some juvenile offense. I mean, I, I'm more than willing to have that discussion. That That is a very warranted and legitimate discussion, but that's not what we're doing. I mean, we're, we're just not doing that. We're, we're adding layers of inhibitants to you owning a gun. I mean, you can call it whatever you like. Smart gun legislation, okay, it may, it may be. Um, reasonable gun legislation, it may be, exactly. But the, the, uh, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, at the end of the day, expands background check requirements for buyers of guns. Um, it widens the category of people not allowed to buy guns, and it provides federal funding for states who enhance, excuse me, who um, enforce the, the the added red flag laws. I mean, you know, there's a fair debate to be had about some of this: what follows you as a juvenile or not. That that's a very fair conversation to have. I'm just not sure that's what we did. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam. Morning. Um, Ken, I, I'm glad you mentioned that there are some fair debates to be had because uh, it was sort of sounding like you were saying that any and all regulation about uh, the bearing of firearms, uh, owning firearms, was was uh, off limits. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the, what I call the purest... Um, libertarian position which i think is is kind of naive really i mean how do you handle the the argument that the um that the liberals make that well we if you're driving an automobile on a public highway you got to have a have it registered and have the registration with you i mean you know that that restricts your right to transportation right i mean you know they're and and uh, we got laws now say you can't uh, a private person can't um, buy a machine gun M60 machine gun or a rocket launcher stuff like you know and um, 
is that a bad thing? You know, I, I think I, I'm just saying, you know, some regulation is okay. And but like saying we say, have regulation, there's a South Carolina yeah. red flag law in the books right now. I got it in my hand. It's in a law. Yeah. It is unlawful for a person to knowingly sell, offer to sell, deliver, or sell in the state any handgun to a person uh, who, by order of a circuit county judge of the state, has been adjudicated unfit to carry possess firearm. Such adjudication to be made upon the application by any police officer, uh, by any prosecuting officer by the state. Uh, by the court, by a person who is subject to an application, is entitled to reasonable notice and a proper hearing prior to um, such adjudication. To me, that's reasonable gun legislation. I, I don't have a problem with that. All right. Well, good. I don't either. Glad <laughs> you don't. I, I just, I, I was just saying, and maybe, maybe you already understand this. That the, 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 uh, the purest um, libertarian argument is is not really um, suitable for the real world. You know, we, we do need some regulations. And Sam, I'd love your opinion on this. You don't owe me an answer, but I'd love to get an answer. From, from As you refer to the liberal, excuse me, the purest libertarian position, would you agree that government creep has added a certain element of aggressiveness of the, in other words, the purest libertarian has always been there, will always be there, and some make sense, some don't. But but the government creep, um, the, and a little more government, a little more government, a little more, just a little bit more, and we'll have this, and a little bit more over here, and we'll have things squared away. To me, that almost forces folks like me to consider whether or not I'm a purist libertarian. Well, yeah, generally, that's true. There has been a, a regulatory creep, I, I, I'll admit, although there's also been... Uh, you know, there's also been abuses of free enterprise, um, and, and I guess the alternative to regulation would be lawsuits. You know, maybe, we, maybe, we, and uh, and we have uh, another problem is we have uh, corporate law that that shields corporations or the you know, the people that work in corporations from liability, or the owners of corporations from liability. So corporations have been have done things that are really harmful to people, and um, but the owners, you know, and so so I think you know if we um, if we take away some of this corporate shield, um, make the owners more liable, and uh, open up you know the some more lawsuit and more possibility of lawsuits. Maybe that would be maybe we could roll back some regulations, but. Human nature being what it is, we, we need one or the other, I think. And that is a debate. I mean, that, that's a very just and worthwhile debate. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate the call. Um, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make, and maybe I did a lousy job of explaining it, I've never been as absolute on the Second Amendment as I am now. I, I'm not an absolutist. I, I am. I have a strong libertarian bias about me and the way I see the world, but I feel like I've been forced to be that. I feel like that as the government creeps more and more into my life, regulates more and more and more of my life, they've almost given me no choice but to basically say, either you're going to run your life for me, or I'm going to let you run my life for me, or I'm going to have to push back. And I think that the natural position to have in pushing back is this kind of an absolutist, purist, uh, libertarian stance. And and I've, I've never been that. I've always been a fairly pragmatic, business-minded Republican, but I never imagined. I mean, I asked a question last night of two candidates for superintendent of education. Should boys play boy sports and girls play girl sports? 
I mean, when I when I put the question down on paper, who would have thought? I just kind of like who would have thunk that, you know? But but it's a valid question because the U.S. Department of Education is mandating a public school systems uh, to address that. In other words, if you don't have, if you're going to force boys to go into boys, and I'm talking about biologically born boys and biologically born girls, if you're going to force them to go use the the restroom of their sex, you've got to give these transgenders somewhere to go. A biological male who identifies as a female, a biological female who identifies as a male. We, we've got to accommodate those people. I mean, that, that almost turns me into an absolutist. It almost turns me into a libertarian because it seems to me that government has lost its damn mind. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. The trifecta is a duo today. Uh, Mike Rickenbaugh, Senator Rickenbaugh, Representative Lower here today. Uh, Representative Jay Jordan is not here um, today, but uh, we've got a uh, conversation that we'll have uh, for the balance of the hour. We've got a couple of calls. We want to make sure we go to our calls. And uh, I think it's important for you folks to tell our legislative delegation what you're thinking and what you're seeing out there. Uh, let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, guys. I think we need to be harsher with the laws that we have on the book, um, especially murder um, with a weapon. That should be death penalty automatically if you're convicted without a doubt. Like um, these stupid uh, gun laws that we have, they don't enforce the ones that we got. So um, if we enforce the ones that we got, I think we do a little bit better with the violence and um, I don't know, more support for the police so they can get these gangbangers off the streets. They don't follow the laws to begin with. So. Is a red flag law really going to affect a 15-year-old gangbanger that kills somebody, goes to jail, gets out of um, jail, and then turns 18 and then wants to, he's not going to go to a gun store to buy a gun. He's going to get it off the streets like he got the first one. Um, the Road v. Wade thing, are you guys watching that? When's that going to come out? Because I hope they pass it just because they're out there protesting them. I don't want them to think that they can violently protest and start burning down pro-life places and then get away with it. And I'll take that off the air. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. The, the, the Roe v. Wade decision will be the first week in July at the latest. From what I understand, I'm no expert on the Supreme Court, there's a rotation that they do these opinions. And Thomas gave the opinion, the majority opinion yesterday, one of the most aggressive opinions I've ever heard um, I think Clarence Thomas just said, I'm tired of being quiet. Uh, I've been here a long time and I've kind of paid my dues and I'm going to speak my piece. Um, the, um, the concurring opinion by Roberts was not as aggressive, but Alito's opinion was the one leaked and Alito is the last week of June. We believe now we're speculating here, but we believe in the rotation basis of how the opinions are released. Um, the leak was of the Alito, uh, majority opinion and Alito's week is either the last week of June or the first week of July. So if you apply some of that, I don't know, elementary, what, what am I trying to say here, Rev? Some of that, it's kind of a, it, it's just, a, it's an elementary understanding of what it is they do on the Supreme Court. I mean, they could do it today. I mean, they could do it tomorrow. They, they could do it anytime they choose to do it. But most of the experts I've read expect it to be the last week of June or the first week of July because it is the Alito opinion and they think that is his that's his week or two and kind of the rotation let's go to the phone and then we'll get our legislators jim in florence hello jim hey good morning guys um so my my question is 
Um, I know y'all guys kind of got to be cheerleaders for the state, and and you talk about how well financially the state's doing and and on, but it's like if our two neighbor states are doing tremendously well in regards to crime and um, economically compared to us, but in South Carolina, unless you live on the peripheral of the state, whether it's bordering North Carolina and Georgia or on the coast, uh, life ain't the quality of life ain't so good in the interior. We have rampant crime, uh, no jobs. Um, I mean, the roadside trash in our area, I think, speaks to all of that. I mean, it's just atrocious. What, what is the what is the legislature doing to improve the quality of life where the quality of life ain't so good? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Um, and that'll get us started here. Um, a very thoughtful call. Um, Philip, I'll start with you. Uh, Jim is arguing, I just, to some degree, um, the state is more than held its own. The South is growing. South Carolina is part of that growth. But there are certain places that, that have <sighs> more struggles than others. Um, crime and lack of employment and some of the, um, the socioeconomic issues that, that are involved. And what you and I have had extensive, Mike and I have had extensive conversations about the PD. And, and what can we do to make life better in the PD uh, from a legislative perspective? Uh, what are some priorities we need to pay close attention to? When I look around the state, you know, I see one area, Rock Hill, that's a that's really probably a North Carolina-generated growth. The rest of it, I think, is internal. I mean, Greenville, you look at Lexington, uh, that's right in the center of the state. It, it, but they've got good Republican local, you know, uh, county councils and city councils that they're dealing with. What hurts us here? I, mean, I don't know. But does city council hurt our growth? It's is basically going to be a six-to-one dominated Democrat uh, council here. Um, County Council seems to be on the right track, working on industrial needs and trying to get growth in those areas. Um, Our coast, of course, generates a lot of growth. It's hard to goof up the ocean. It's hard to screw up the ocean. It's a a great asset that that we have have a lot of growth in. So, but you know, I look at the little towns and all, and I, I talked a little bit about Johnsonville yesterday, but little towns, we've got to concentrate on our rural areas and try to help them survive. They're, they're struggling worse than Florence is, and that way of life is really the foundation, the core principles that America was founded on, and we've got to find a way to make them thrive. Mike, what we can't do is, is the resent complex. In other words, people in rural South Carolina resent those at the beach, resent those in Greenville, resent those as Philip said, in Lexington and some of these high-growth areas. But there is, uh, it's kind of a tale of two cities here, that there is a, a certain part of South Carolina that has grown phenomenally. And there's another segment that goes, uh, what about us? And I'm not saying resentment is beginning, but but it does appear to be a divide there. Yeah, I'm really actually glad we brought this up because that divide is growing. And we should all be concerned, even those in the PD that are doing well, should be concerned because when we think about economic development and job creation, it's going to matter when companies look at the PD and they look at one statistic in particular we received last week in the Senate, percent of children living in poverty. And the reason that's so important, Ken, is because companies look at an area and they say, I'm not as concerned about who's going to be my employee base and my consumer base today, but who's going to be my employee base and consumer base 
in three years, in five years, in 10 years before I make a multi-million dollar investment. So the report that came out, and I got just quick stat here, the percent of children living in poverty in the United States under the poverty line is 15.7% in the U.S. South Carolina is 18.7%. Now, Florence County is 21%. But then if you take it and extrapolate that to the rest of the PD, who oftentimes they come to Florence, Darlington County, 27.5%. Dillon County, 31.8%. And Marion County, 32.5%. So the PD has, in many areas, one out of every three children is living in poverty. Now, it's not an exact science to say if you grew up in poverty, you're going to have a harder time in school, you're going to be less employed or underemployed. But there are statistics that say that the road is a whole lot harder when you grow up in poverty. And then the percentages of the children living in poverty who have either no parent at home because they live with a grandparent or an, what they consider a minor parent at home. 18-year-olds having babies, 19-year-olds having babies, children themselves. So if we don't look at this and, and essentially say we got a problem that's coming down the road, we're going to wake up and see that the PD has a short shortage of workers that are qualified. Then if you compare areas like York County that Philip mentioned, 10.5%. Below so the national average. 10.5. Lexington County, 11.7%, well below the national average. So can you blame companies to say, you know, one out of every three in the PD versus one out of 10 in York County, who's going to be my better workforce and my better consumer force? We're going to have to look at it from an economic development standpoint. How are we going to attract companies to come here when the PD is not doing well in terms of realizing families are hurting here? And, and Philip, you and I have talked a lot about this on and <laughs> off the air. Um, a lot of that debate centers around education. And I moderated a debate last night between two candidates, Ellen Weaver and Kathy Manus. And I mean, I'm ready to go on the air. I mean, I think you've already done this. I don't know about Mike or not. But but as someone who believes that public education needs reform and disruption, I think it's obvious that Ellen Weaver is the first candidate we've had in a long time who appears to be committed to seeing through some degree of reform. And we don't do this. And I, I don't care if, you know, endorsements or endorsements or endorsements. But, but I'm, I mean, I'm ready to publicly support Ellen because I do believe that she understands we can't continue as we always have and expect different results. And I do think that plays in exactly to Mike's narrative. Um, the socioeconomic issue can be improved if we work on education to some degree. Uh, I'm for Ellen also, and I think it's been obvious. In last night was obvious. Uh, she was direct and, and right up front with her her answers to your questions. Uh, and I like that. And it's scary to think that the left is supporting one of our candidates here. And, and Kathy seems to have a lot of support generated from the left. That scares me too. That means status quo. Uh, education is, is the great equalizer. It really does bring people out of poverty and, and creates wealth. It, it creates you know, stable jobs and a way to supply money for your family so the pd has a problem with education it has a, a problem with poverty and so it, it is more difficult to attract here we don't have a beach we do have a great interstate system right here beside us and that is what i think is is one of our primary drivers for for new growth and all i don't know that it's government's job to equalize things i can't equalize olanta and florence i can't get them a performing 
art center down there, but I do have to pay attention to their needs. My job is to try to get back a percentage of the state budget into our area to help our area in the places that will help the most. But I can't make it Lexington by myself. This is a, a long process of change. And, Mike, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of the, the key points that we as legislators need to be prepared to do is call it what it is. Education is important, without question. But the breakdown in the family is also a big part of this, the breakdown of that nuclear family. And I'm not to saying that every family has to have a mom and a dad and, you know, be the pick, picket fence. But schools and educators were not meant to also raise children and to discipline children. They were meant to educate children. So, you know, I was, the other day I was speaking down in, in Williamsburg County. When you've got 65% of the class either comes from a single parent household or no parent where they're raised by their grandparent, that is the toll that is being taken on families that you're not going to overcome that by pouring more dollars into education. It's a waste of dollars if you're just going to try to fix the problem. Grandparents are tired. So when a seven-year-old comes home and says, I don't know how to read this or I don't know how to do this math. Are we expecting the 75 year old grandmother to sit down and figure out how to do that? That wasn't the job of educators to raise children. We got to address the fact we walked away from biblical principles from the family and the importance of the family to raise children. But how do we address that, Mike? I mean, you're preaching to the choir. You know yep. that. I mean, I've yep. talked about the number of kids going to school, uh, not ready to learn, not able to learn. And it's not their fault. Socio socioeconomic and, and the breakdown of the family. You're right. Are major contributors to that. But, but he's a House member. You're a senator. I'm a radio show host. How do I make people get married? How do I make people stay married? How do I make people stop having kids? I mean, yeah. that, that's, a, that's not a political issue. No. The, the world of politics has to deal with it eventually. Yeah. No, no question about it. We address it with entitlement programs and support programs. And, and education um, is impeded by, by what we're dealing with. But, but at the end of the day, this is a socioeconomic. It's, it's a matter of the heart yeah. and the soul and not something that a Republican can fix or a Democrat can fix. So where do we go in this conversation about kids going to school from broken homes when it's not government's job to fix the broken home? Yeah, man, that's a, that's a great question and an involved question. And unfortunately, there's going to have to be an economic perspective that we as legislators take. When young girls make the statement publicly that I'm going to try to have three kids by the time I'm 21 – because I get X amount of dollars per child. And when you ask them, well, are you going to get married? If I get married, the redu the reduction in benefits doesn't make it worthwhile. I get more money if I have more kids. It's a reality. I've heard them say it. So as legislators, I really do believe that while we, we, don't, we need to pray for our country, we need to pray for our families, we also need to be prepared to, to make some tough decisions to say we're not going to incentivize young people to have more money if they have more babies because you see what's happening here the government has incentivized bad behavior mm -hmm. and and that's what you get more of it what you pay for you're going to get more of and it you know and i'm sitting in the back room while we're dividing up this huge budget this year and they start talking about a rebate and it, it was generated more out of the senate and i said well how is this rebate going to be distributed so if a married couple makes a certain amount of money they're going to get the the income coming back in this rebate and it's going to be the maximum i think of eight hundred dollars well there might be two breadwinners in there in a married family why didn't we get sixteen hundred why why did we disincentivize the marriage at that point the single person could get the same amount of money eight hundred dollars 
there's two workers over here in a, in a married family. Had we said as government, if we'd have said, y'all get 1600 because you're married and there's two of you working, then we would have incentivized marriage. We, we failed at the state level this year doing that. Now, I'm proud we gave $2 billion back. We've never even heard of that kind of money given back in, in income tax refunds and or sales tax refunds, too, basically is what, what it was. We cut the tax rates uh, this year and permanent tax rates cut. So you incentivize and you'll get more of what you want. Is it conservative or cold-hearted to cut some of these programs? I mean, you're talking about the incentivizing uh, bad behavior. I mean, I totally agree with that. I read a lot about, you know, some of the programs in the federal government, state government subsidizes, or the federal government <clears throat> gives you money, got to marry money with Medicaid and all these other programs. I mean, Mike, Philip, I, I mean, nobody wants to see hungry people. Nobody wants to see people in despair. I don't, you don't, nobody does. We just talked about a better quality of life, not just for Republicans, not just for white people or black people or Hispanic, for everybody. Um, but, but does government have an obligation to demonstrate some tough love and, and cut some programs that do we that, that we do as conservatives believe incentivize bad behavior and financially reward bad yeah. behavior? I think government has an absolute responsibility to stop doing what isn't, isn't working. And poverty doesn't know color, honestly. Poor white, poor black, poor Hispanic is still poor. And if government continues, especially the, the radical liberal agenda, to attempt to grow their voter base by putting people on the on the government dollar, by getting people conditioned to wait, want more handouts, people will take it. They will continue to say, I'm better off having more children, being unmarried and not working because I can make a living. Not a good living, but I can make a living doing this. I think it's also incumbent on society, on voters to say enough. So those that would lean toward that liberal agenda ought to wake up and realize all they're doing is incentivizing a system that is broken and getting more broken. It's not conservatism because we are so righteous. It's conservatism because it works better when people go to work. People working for $1,000 has a much better impact than people receiving a check from the government for $1,000. Philip, last question of this segment. How much money goes to Medicaid? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a healthcare program for poor people. Um, how much of the state's budget is already spent? Well, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. I mean, the federal government requires the states to spend X number of dollars in matching Medicaid. I mean, I remember Governor Haley didn't take some of the Medicaid, but but roughly, what do we spend as a state on Medicaid? I'm not prepared to answer that, but it's one of the largest parts of our budget: education and Medicaid. You know, and, and we split that with the federal government. Correct. Of course, with that comes the strings that are attached. And, and we really don't have a lot of say-so in how it's distributed. We did decline expanding it, you know, a few years back and fought back, that back, and that certainly saved us a lot of money. But but it is a substantial amount of money. I mean, oh, yeah, it, it, it grows by 100 to $200 million a year. It grows that much. Yeah, and that's uh, some of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, stipulated the state governments to, to do this. Uh, I told Rev, I'll share this story real quick, and then we'll take our break. So I'm in the market for health care. I mean, I, I went out and bought one of these uh, indemnity plans, and it's just high maintenance. There's a lot of paperwork. It's very affordable. They do what they say they're going to do, but they request of you to fill out a lot of paperwork, and I just ain't the kind of dude that's good at that. I mean, I'm just not. So I went online and began shopping for health care. First question asked, how much money do you make? Hmm. How much money do you make? I'm like, I'm buying health care. I'm not applying for a loan. I'm buying health care. <laughs> but the first, the first place on every website, how much money do you make? We socialize health care, and Medicaid has exploded 
as a result of that. And I think you both you guys made very valid points. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Philip, as politely as he could, just said, when are we talking guns, man? I mean, he said, he said can we, um, uh, surely there's, I heard you earlier talking about, this. absolutely we're going to talk about it, because it is a hot-button issue in American politics. We've had two stories, um, kind of competing stories. We had a, a vote in the U.S. Senate. Uh, our own Lindsey Graham joined the Democrats and 13 other Republicans in what I'd argue, uh, Representative Lowe, the Bipartisan Save for Community Act. We don't have time to go through 80 pages but it expands background check requirements for gun buyers younger than 21. It widens the categories of people who are not allowed to buy a firearm, and it provides federal funding, and here's where you guys will come in, to states for enforcing some of these additional um, red flag laws. But we also had an opinion yesterday of the New York hearing that solidified the constitutional right to keep and bear arms um, I don't have a question, but what do you make of the vote in the Senate and the the ruling of the Supreme Court as you do your job as a legislator in South Carolina? Thank you, Mr. Trump, for putting <laughs> on some conservatives on that bench. And that will last for years and years. And, and they've come out with some good opinions here lately, and I, I hopefully we'll have another one on abortion before long. My thoughts are, First of all, the government has no business telling us about red flag laws. There's not a single one of those red flag laws that I'm aware of that would have stopped any of these shooters. Now, that doesn't mean any. I'm sure there's something somewhere where somebody got around something that could catch. But I, I just don't see how you're going to stop it. All you're going to do is infringe upon my rights. And the Constitution says, it shall not infringe. And I'm hardcore on that. I believe that we have the right to carry openly or, you know, hidden at our decision. We don't have to ask the government permission. And that's basically what they said in that ruling. You don't have to ask the government for, for any reason. I don't have to prove that I need one. I can tell you right now, the best thing I could tell a liberal, they say, well, we're not going to have a tyrannical government. Y'all are crazy. Well, wait a minute. We just spent a week talking about January 6th, where the, the whole nation was taken over by an insurrection, right? I mean, a, a gunless insurrection at the Capitol. So there's your tyrannical government. We needed guns, right? I mean, we had to defend ourselves. So those silly goats have, have put themselves in a, an untenable position of hypocrisy, which they, they usually do. And let me tell you, we have a right to carry. The Constitution gives it to us. I took the CWP class. I didn't send my stuff into SLED because I'm against government having any interference in my ability to carry a weapon. Mike, the, the ruling that Philip mentions, the the uh, the Thomas majority opinion, and I'm paraphrasing a bit. I don't have his opinion in front of me, but it basically argues that self-defense is the core of the Second Amendment. It's not shooting snakes while you're squirrel hunting. It's not you know, um, shooting cans off the wall in Pamplico while you're drinking, you know, a Bud Light. I mean, this is indeed uh, the intent of the Second Amendment that you, I, and everybody has a constitutional right at self-defense. Absolutely agree with that. And that's why the Second Amendment is so important for us to defend. There are people who will look to do us and our families harm. It's always been like that. It will always be like that. And the police force, the law enforcement, the sheriff's office, they do a heck of a job, but they are reactionary. 
they show up after the crime has been committed. Rarely do they show up beforehand and say, I have a sense something's going to happen tonight. I'm going to park it in your driveway and deter it from happening. They're really good at trying to catch criminals after the crime has been committed. If we aren't prepared to protect ourselves and our families and our homes and our vehicles, then we are going to find ourselves victims. And I think much, much of America, we're tired of being victims. And government needs to wake up and realize we are not going to solve a problem by passing a new bill, passing a new law to expand background checks. There are enough bills on the books, enough laws on the books right now that if we just enforce them, that if you caught this 17-year-old robbing a liquor store with a pistol, I don't believe we should say, as the radical left would, well, he had a really hard childhood and he's got a really bright future. And, you know, he also didn't read well in school. Doggone it, forget the fact that he had a loaded Glock 17 when he robbed that liquor store. At what point do we say, if you rob the liquor store with a pistol, you got a really good chance of using it next time because you get emboldened by it. Let's apply the laws on the books and let's get tougher on crime on the criminals and not trying to expand Americans who are law-abiding citizens from carrying their own weapons. Philip, the, the devil will be in the details, but it looks to me like they're going to try to bribe states to, to enforce these uh, these red flag laws. You can't speak to the General Assembly. Mike can't speak. Uh, you can't speak for the House. Mike can't speak for the Senate. But personally, um, what what sort of what sort of uh, incentives do you expect, and what sort of um, what sort of reaction do you expect to get from from the House? Well, hopefully, a state will challenge it, and if, if this becomes a, a a law, especially they put money behind it, they did kind of the same thing, but they changed the drinking age from what twenty one to eighteen, and, and different things. They tied a federal tax dollars that you. Well, you just get. talked about Medicaid. I mean, the Medicaid yep. money comes with with certain strings attached. We'll give you the money if you do this with it. But but on on the second amendment, I mean, this isn't Rhode Island, this isn't Hawaii, this isn't New York, this isn't California. This is the South. It's the Red South, and People take gun ownership very seriously. So do you believe the General Assembly will say thank you, but no thank you to some of the federal funds that, that will try to convince you guys this is the best thing to do? We're a pretty proud state. Uh, you know, the House passed uh, the, the constitutional carry, which just means you, you have the Constitution provides you the right to carry, not you don't have to ask government for any permission and all that. The Senate was just a couple votes ahead, I believe, Mike, you're going to vote for that if you get a chance, right? For which the, bill? For the constitutional carry? Absolutely. Great. Well, that means we're only, what, two votes away? So we need to pass these things. States have to defend their rights if the federal government's going to be taking them away from us. We have to fight back. And we we have to find people that will sue to get our and get it to Supreme Court. We've got it in our advantage right now. Let's, uh, let's push back. Yeah. Mike, the Senate? Yeah, it, you know, we've got a majority. We're 30 Republicans and 16 Democrats in our Senate. Uh, unfortunately, there's a smaller handful of us that are true conservatives and Republicans. And, and Ken, you were in there. There's some that are Republican truly in name only. The a lot of got elected as Democrats, but when the wind began blowing another way, and then they changed. <laughs> they changed when the winds blew and they changed parties. We need our citizenry to hold them accountable and say, I elected you as a Republican. Uphold the conservative values I held you to because of the 30 Republicans, we did account one. There's only really about 12 of us, 12 to 14 that are truly conservative that say, you will not touch our guns. You won't touch our weapons. This isn't your right to do it. You're 
government's trying to be reactionary. They're trying to look like they're doing something. Hey, we just passed this new bill. This is going to make people safer. That ain't going to make people safer. All it's going to do is create more busy work and more bureaucracy, more red tape to make it appear. It's a shell game. I want to ask one specific question before we finish here. Um, The debate last night, it it involved a question surrounding guns. I mean, it was about should um, school teachers be armed in the name of safety and security on high school or even college campuses. We're talking K through 12 with superintendent of education. Um, As a member of the General Assembly, are you willing to find education in general, air quotes here, a little extra money if teachers agree? We don't force anybody to do anything. But if teachers agree and accept the responsibility uh, of becoming somewhat of a teacher slash security um, officer, should they be paid more? And can the General Assembly figure out a way to get education, more money to help with that um, with that cause? It is. Can I didn't include that in the bill that I wrote that, that I'd got a hearing on but couldn't get it through. And I didn't do it because I didn't want to listen to the debate about taking money away from education of some sort. And that's that's what you run into. The Democrats scream loud about anything school choice issues that that might take something quote away from from public education so i left that out intentionally but if you train them with the same people at the justice academy that train our law enforcement officers if they have training from those people and they're volunteers and they're approved by their principal that they're of good character and you know good sound mind then those people could help now let me ask you something people come out of high school and go to the Justice Academy, come out, and six months later, they're a cop, right? So we've got people with master's degrees already in life. You don't think any of those people could be trained? They're not capable? Are they not capable because they teach? And you're not talking about a CWP. You're talking about extensive training from Uh, the academy, similar to what a a police officer would receive. That's right. You get trained there, similar. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to write tickets and all, but you get all the, the training for or you know, a school shooting type thing, how to respond to that. And then you have to train with your local law enforcement. And you, you have plans, and you, you'd have to go back to school and practice in the evenings and stuff and, and get up with law enforcement. What do we do when and if? And, Mike, if that happens, would you support an increase in compensation when a teacher accepts that responsibility? Yeah, I, I would support an increase in compensation, but I'd say, Ken, the money's already there. There doesn't need to be a raising of taxes or let's take it. The, the money's there. There's there's no shortage of money. It's about taking the money that's wasted in other areas and applying it where it should be. And the training would need to be more than a CWP. You know, I've been a certified sworn law enforcement officer for now 25 years, and we qualify every year. I was at the range two weeks ago qualified. The challenge with that as your qualification is targets don't move, targets don't shoot back. The training, and I've talked to several law enforcement officers that I serve with, the training needs to be real training. Four years ago, we shut down West Florence High School. Myself, many many of the Florence County Sheriff's Officers and Florence City Police, we went there, we did an active shooter training with SIMS. They're, they're, they're airsoft guns, but they hurt, and they hurt bad, little white pellets right there. And when you go through a hallway in a school, when you got people moving, you got people screaming, and you don't know who the shooter is and who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. That is so different than being on a range. So there is training available. Uh, we did a simulation of homecoming, gymnasium, and you go in there, the music's playing, and there's an active shooter. And they had one with three active shooters in there. Dark, music playing, strobe lights going. Who's the shooter? Who's not the shooter? It is chaos. 
and you're sweating, you're doing the best you can to save lives. But that's the kind of training they need to go through because active shooters don't stand still like a target. But there's training out there that could prepare teachers to prepare to protect themselves and their students. And I'd be supportive of it. Yeah. And thanks to both of you. Appreciate you coming. Go enjoy your day. Um, You've done your public service for the, for the morning, and uh, and we really get. I mean that sincerely. I think our listeners really you, appreciate. You made it sound like that's the most important thing they do all week. No, it's just not service. at all. By the way, they break their normal and busy schedules. And we appreciate to come by Friday much. mornings, and we appreciate. Don't do it for me. They do it for you, the listeners and the voters. I mean that's kind of the relationship politicians have with voters. Got to listen. Take a break. Back in a minute. I can prove I ain't woke. I'm going to see a movie about Elvis tonight. Not some light year. What what is it? There's a scene in Buzz Lightyear, the movie. Yeah. The name of the movie is Lightyear. Lightyear. There's a scene where we, we've established he doesn't kiss another dude, right? Right. Yeah. It's not. It's not Buzz. Okay. It's it's another. I guess another space ranger. There's a lesbian space Female. ranger embroiled in a same sex relationship with another female space ranger is that right something like that but is it a biological female or is it a male who identifies as a female (laughs) when all these things are important yeah um but yeah we i I may talk my wife into go see in a movie why hasn't there not been a blockbuster made about elvis until now seriously i mean he's one of the most uh, what what uh revolutionary figures sure in american history that's a good Um, question yeah why have we not made a movie uh because we're we're losing our a game we're not as good at anything today as we were uh many many years ago i wonder if that's something that's been controlled by the estate you know the people that yeah, run graceland and, yeah. and they just maybe haven't done one and somebody finally offered them enough money i wonder <laughs> somebody finally said we'll give you this much you think it might be about the money yeah really? could be charles barkley said it's never about the money it's always about how, how much, much money <laughs> let's go to the phone lynn in hartsville hello lynn good morning <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, sir. A long haul, but uh, it's it's worth it. Uh, you know, if you look back, you have people 20, 30, 40 years ago picked up, you know, a felony. And uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but through time, a felon can still own a gun. A lot of people don't think so, but... Uh, you know, some people change, some people don't. But you can still own a black powder pistol, rifle, or uh, even go as far as a flamethrower. A felon can still own these weapons. And uh, the type of business I'm in over here, uh, you know, I have daily people uh, every day coming by. And, you know, yelling out the wonder and this, that, and the other. We've had one problem where some of my goods got damaged. And uh, with the law enforcement, we ran them down and and, uh, and got paid for that. But uh, with these red flag laws that's coming out, what, what's to say that nosy Karen can't call in on her neighbor because he's got a Trump sign in his yard? or a Second Amendment sign, and she thinks he's nuts or whatever. And and this is, uh, it's crazy. I mean, it, it, it really is. And uh, another thing is maybe Drew McKenzie could be in charge or somebody to, to start grooming somebody to take Lindsey Graham's place. I mean, you know, lots of folks 
in the Republican side are tired of this man. And that's all I had to say. Thank you, Lynn. I mean, lots are, but not enough. I mean, Lindsey wins every primary he's ever been in that I know of. I mean, I don't know that Lindsey's ever lost a race. Uh, he followed Strom Thurmond, and he's been a senator since then. He was a House member before that. Um, I get the love-hate. I mean, I do it. I hear over and over and over again, it's time to get rid of Lindsey Graham. It's time to get rid of Lindsey Graham. We have elections every six years. We've yet to get rid of Lindsey Graham. So there are enough Republican primary voters or enough voters in the Republican primary. Let me rephrase that. There are enough voters in the Republican primary that appreciate the job Lindsey Graham has done, and that's how representative republic works. I mean, the, you know, one voter, one man, one vote, uh, that's just the nature of primary. So, you know, if you feel like Lindsey's let you down, um, find a candidate that can raise money and beat him. That's the nature of American politics. Take a break. Back in a minute. See, now that's a good way to kick the Friday morning off, right? Is you it? got serious political talk about gun control and uh, taxes, and um, Jim basically says to the legislators, you got to do better. You, you got to do better. I understand cheering for the home team. We all appreciate and accept that as a role and responsibility. Um, but then you get to hear Springsteen. And I noticed you've moved it back an hour. Well, you, th- you, you think it's too disrespectful. <laughs> of the uh of the legislative delegation or members of the legislative delegation when they come in they're not the only members guys but they're they're not the only members of our delegation there are some democrats there's some other republicans these three guys have expressed the most interest in coming in to the show and having this interaction with you guys and i hope it gets better and better and better as time goes by uh but rev has pushed back the springsteen friday morning that you guys are so looking forward to 
to the nine o'clock hour instead of the eight. O'clock. I know mm-hmm. what you did, mm, you um, did. and you know that I know what you did, <laughs> but I didn't say anything because I agree with what you okay. did. Uh, the eight o'clock hour is going to set aside for serious political conversations. Um, it just kind of worked out like that. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of it's, it's weird to me. I mean, we've had um, guests on the show at the eight o'clock hour. And it's almost like the job is complete, but we've got another hour of which to um, grind through the world of American politics. And we Springsteen do. just kind of, on Friday at 9, it just kind of rejuvenates me. Gets me going toward oh. the weekend. Um, I may go to the movie. I'm going to text my wife here in a minute see if she wants to see uh, a movie about Elvis. Don't want to see any, I don't want to see any lesbian robots. I mean, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't have any interest in seeing a lesbian, robotic, animated, animated computer-generated yeah. feature. Uh, Kiss one another. I ain't into all that. I don't think that movie's doing very well. I think it's kind of a flop. Well, I mean, you can't have female robots kissing one another and expect American embrace. Especially in a, in a in children's age, movie. In the age of Top Gun. Top Gun right. is an insult to liberal America. Top Gun That's gives me it. hope. Top Gun is as testosterone patriotism as you could find. I mean, it's, excuse my French, guys. You ready? But it's Friday. Ready? It's a bunch of badasses being badasses is what it is. And that's, to some degree, what America cannot lose. I mean, that's important to America. Uh, when, you know, and, and I go back to the scene in Top Gun when um, when the guy says, and I thought they would cut this. I really and truly believed that we would not see a repeat of that scene. In the first Top Gun, he says, you're in here because you're the best of the best. Well, in America today, we don't celebrate the best of the best. We'd rather the best of the best kind of slow down a little bit. Let somebody keep up with you. Be as good as you are. We want everybody to finish this race at about the same time, but whomever decided to leave that in was an ultimate compliment to the America that I so admire, and that is a meritocracy. The best just do better than the rest. I mean, do you want an average fighter pilot fighting our wars? Do you want an average, um, hey, you look like you'd make a good airplane pilot. How about come over here and let us train you for a month or two and uh, put you in charge of this metal tube flying 30,000 feet at 600 miles an hour and, you know, 550 or 60 people on board. No, we want the best of the best doing these things, and there's no harm in that. There's there's no lack of political correctness in that. But for whatever reason, we've, we've kind of bought into this notion of if somebody's better than somebody else, something must be unfair. I mean, something just must be unfair. And, and Elvis, I mean, if they do the movie right, you know what Elvis is going to be? Better than everybody else. At what he did, um, but but it's it's interesting to me that nobody has done a blockbuster. But you made a very valid point. It, it may be because control of the estate. What's her name? Priscilla, Priscilla, Priscilla Presley, Presley and his daughter Lisa, Lisa Marie. Marie Presley. She looks just like him. Um, yeah, it it spooky the way she looks like him. But it may be that there were some uh, previous arrangements that had to be sorted out before. Um, they could make the movie, but yeah, it'd probably be kind of an interesting, very interesting American figure. Um, Elvis was kind of a, let's go here now. You ready? Okay. That was a little bit different. I mean, yeah. Elvis, Elvis was a little bit weird in his later year. I mean, we know the tragic death. We know the story of, you know, the, the young, um, handsome devil. I mean, just, just, I mean, unlike any we've probably ever seen and may never see Remember they again. Remember wouldn't show him below the waist sure. on TV? The pelvic thrust um, were, were a bit offensive to um that era of america but you i don't know if you remember this or not but ed sullivan um took a lot of heat for having elvis on and ed sullivan actually invited elvis back out at the end of the show and said look there have been certain things said about this young man and he in today's world they say he's real different he's doing different sorts of things uh 
you know, fundamental Christianity believes he was doing the work of the devil. I mean, Elvis was just doing what he knew how to do, man. I mean, you know, a lot of black blues singers and rhythm and blues singers that influenced, um, and he kind of took that and I don't know, Rev, um, met Sam Phillips and Colonel Tom Parker. And out of that game, I've always felt that Elvis relationship, this is why I'd be interested in the movie. I've always stated Elvis's relationship with Colonel Tom Parker from what I've read. I mean, I'm not a member of the Jordanaires or I wasn't there when they did all their business, but I've always looked at that relationship in a very similar way to Mike Tyson and Don King. Elvis goes sing. Tom, he can't. I mean, he's, he's done it 40 days in a row. He's, you know, give him some pills. I mean, do whatever you got to yeah, get him don't out care there. What you have to do. Yeah, yeah, we got money to make. And I've always felt Don King did that with Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was obviously a man with some issues. I mean, with no question about it. Um, I mean, he was a great fighter, but he, he was struggling with him, probably fighting himself more than he was fighting his opponents. But Don King didn't care anything about that because Mike Tyson was a fighter and he makes money and I make money when he fights. So getting back out there in the ring, same thing with Elvis. Tom Parker appeared to me. Maybe this, um, maybe this movie goes there. You know, it did Tom Parker abuse the privilege of being Elvis's, um, Elvis's manager and everybody got rich on Elvis's or, you know, because Elvis was so talented. I want to go back real quick. I know I got a call. I want to go back real quick. We left out one thing in the gun debate. You know, I'm for arming teachers. I believe teachers should be extensively trained in, you know, owning, keeping, um, arming themselves, becoming a part of a security team in the name of um, child safety and student safety. I mean, I am 1,000% in support of that. But here's the one thing we don't like talking about. You ready? We like theorizing and hypothesizing. Um, Mike Rickenbaugh said, you know, a moving, excuse me, a target doesn't move, nor does it shoot back. I mean, there's another level of seriousness that, that I don't think we talk enough about. And I think the reason we don't talk about it, we don't like to. When you, when you accept responsibility for owning a gun and you put it on your side as part of not self-defense because that's self-accounting. I mean, that's a self-accountability that you've got to hash out internally and introspectively. But as a teacher, when a teacher decides that they want to be a part of keeping students safe, and part of that means carrying a gun, um, they've got to accept the responsibility of potentially killing someone. I mean, you're looking at me, and I, I don't want to talk about that. No, I mean, that, no, no, no. that's true. I, no. I, like the way, I like the way National Review said it. I like the way the New York Times talked about it. I, I don't want to talk. No, well, that's, that's reality. the reality. That, that is a, a very cold, hard truth. When you agree to become extensively trained and arm yourself in a school, you've decided that when the time comes, if the time ever comes, you're willing to shoot someone dead. That's a pretty, I mean, that's a serious matter. That's something that I don't think we contemplate enough. You've got your CWP. Mm -hmm. How have you hashed that out? Well, of course you I mean, have you ever hashed that out? Yeah. Very well, like a, most of us have. Right, right. You, you thought and about I hope it. I never come to that. And, I and hope that's it never exactly comes to you, that. You hope and but pray. But everybody says that, don't they? That's right. But for some, it may. And, and you really question, you know, would you would you be able to do it? You know, if you were in that situation, I would think most people that have their CWP probably struggle with that a little bit. And you hope and pray it never happens. Well, listen, it's not obviously. Hollywood. I mean, it's country boys to say. I'd pop a cap, you know what I mean? I'd just show them, right? Okay, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but you've got a gun drawn. 
pointing at another human being at the harder head. And when you decide to pull the trigger, you've changed your life forever. I mean, you've, I mean, I've talked to law enforcement officers, their lives are never the same. I mean, you know, you cope with it, you deal with it, you move on, you did your job. I get all that. I understand all that, but, but you can't tell me once you make that decision, you don't, there, there's some, there's some consequences that come along with that decision. And I think when we talk about arming teachers and CWPs and second amendment rights, I think you've got to understand that if, if the second amendment grants you the constitutional right to defend yourself, and I think it does, I don't think there's any question. You also have to accept the responsibility that under a certain circumstance at a certain time that you and I hope never comes, but could, you've got to be willing to pull the trigger and kill another human being. That is a very consequential action that I don't think we consider in the fashion we should. And you had asked um, the senator and the representative during the segment this morning about you know funding and would you be for additional pay for a teacher that took on that added training and responsibility, et cetera. But what, doesn't the law actually have to be changed to allow that before it would happen too? I would imagine. Yeah, sure. I, I don't know how that process that's, that's would work. First, that's the first step. I, yeah. You know. but, but, but once again, I think it's an, I mean, I think it's a big bonus. I mean, I, I believe that you don't go from it. Let's hypothetically, I don't know what teachers make. Let's say a teacher's making 50 grand a year. Um, you don't raise their pay to 55. Now, now the argument to raise it to 55, well, they'll never have to do that. They'll never have to do that. But, but what if they do? I mean, what if a teacher in a classroom has a gun, has extensive training, has gone through all the academy training, um, and when someone comes to commit an act of violence against those kids, that teacher decides to pull that trigger and kill that human being, that, that there has to be a premium paid to someone that, that basically signs that contract agreeing that at that given moment, I'm the one that's going to kill the other person. This person that came to kill kids, I'm going to be the person that kills the person before they kill the kids. That there's there's a financial reality to that. And once again, is it fifty to eighty? Is it fifty to seventy five? Because because the argument would be, well, they're never going to do it. You're paying them twenty five grand a year, extra money. I mean, how many people have life insurance? How many people have insurance in case their home burns down? How many houses burned down? Your house ever burnt down, Rev? No. Nope. Freehold, your house ever burnt down? Uh, mine hadn't either. But, but, you know, you have fire insurance just in case it happens and you pay a premium for that. And I think the, the, I guess the argument I'm making, the premium paid to a teacher that one day may have to shoot a human being dead is a pretty significant premium that we have to consider. Let's go to the phone. Verd, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. Finally. <laughs> um, uh, Ken, great job, uh, last night. Uh, I think you get to be the master of these debates and stuff, but, uh, Anyway, um, uh, Tuesday morning, uh, Ellen Weaver, she hit a grand slam on the interview last night. She followed that up with a grand slam and a triple. And uh, I think she proved that she is definitely the person to turn education around in South Carolina. I think her reforms and uh, uh, bringing teachers, parents, and students together uh, as one unit to work towards a better education, I think we'll see uh, something that we hadn't seen in decades, and that's that failing report card in South Carolina on education uh, turn into a winning card for the people of South Carolina. Thank you, my man. Appreciate it. Um, and and I, I'll say this. I mean, I think I publicly supported Ellen during the last segment, got caught up in the moment with these other politicians. Um, I'm for reform. 
I'm for change. I don't like the status quo. And it seems to me in this contest, I think both people are qualified. I think both are competent. I think both know and are genuine in their sincerity about wanting to prove education. I just believe that we've got to stop with the same old, same old. You've got to discontinue the status quo, what I call the education establishment, that that is, you know, forced South Carolina to accept being 48, 49 in America. I think there's a new day in America. Um, here's the dynamic. Here's the dilemma. And I think Verd will agree with me to this. The teachers will be highly motivated to vote, and they're not going to vote for a reformer. They're not going to vote for a change agent. Will some teachers vote? Yes, of course they will. Um, but the, the data clearly shows that the, the teachers in America vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. So if teachers in America vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, then they're not going to vote for a conservative reform agent that wants to fundamentally radically change the way we educate young people in South Carolina. So Ellen Weaver's not going to win this election with the support of school teachers. In fact, if she loses, it will be because of school teachers. Republican primary voters are the only chance Ellen Weaver has to win. You may or may not be as interested and motivated about the superintendent of education. Trump's not in it. You know, we had the Rice, Fry, Arthur, Richardson, um, Barton, uh, Smarse, McBride election. I did a good job. Named them all. Um, we had that election. But a lot of people were motivated to go do that because they felt they owed Donald Trump. Trump's not a part of this election. Teachers are going to vote, and teachers are going to vote against the person who is offering change. I didn't say every teacher. I can hear a teacher now or the spouse of a teacher. Well, my teacher is voting, but the majority, overwhelming majority, probably maybe 65, 35 teachers are going to vote for the status quo education candidate. The only way Weaver wins is Republican primary voters come back next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, and cast a ballot again. I mean, her fate is in your hands. If her fate is in the education uh, establishment's hands, she loses. But if the Republican primary voter, the conservative Republican primary voter, who genuinely, sincerely believe that we need competition and choice in education, if they come out and vote, Weaver wins. That's the way this race shakes down, breaks down, and you saw how obvious that was last night. Um, no, no on one in one corner, we've got educators for Manus. In another corner, we've got Moms for Liberty for Weaver. I mean, the shirts actually said Moms for Liberty. I saw some choice shirts, some competition-minded uh, people there. But that's kind of where this race is, and I am publicly supporting. I didn't do it before the debate because I want to hear what both had to say. I mean, I knew where my leanings and biases were, and you folks knew that. But but last night, I'm convinced now that only one candidate in this race has a genuine interest in forcefully changing the education establishment in South Carolina, and her name is Ellen Weaver. And the only way she wins is the Republican primary voter, conservative-minded Republican primary voter, show up as they did in the normal electing process, same way in the runoff. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mark in Latta. Hello, Mark. Hey, how you doing this morning? Hey, Mark. How are you? All right. I want to talk about this arming teachers thing. Uh, I think it's a great idea. I think uh, if, if you arm a few of them and these cowards know that they are armed, they're not going to come in there shooting a bunch of people. 
Thank you, sir. I, I kind of like the, um, the 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 air marshal model. Rev was talking about that during the uh, last break when Mike and and Philip's still here. Um, I mean, if you if you're someone who wishes to commit the night of violence and to get, you're there to kill kids, the first person you shoot is the, the the security guard. You know, the person with the uniform and with the gun. I mean, if you can take that person down, then there is no other layer of insulation or, or protection. And so, so I like the fact that the teachers, you know, wearing khakis and a, or jeans and a shirt, whatever teachers wear. I don't know what teachers wear. Um, been to school in a long time. Um, wasn't real good at it when I went. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but whatever they wear, I think keep them in that attire and, and allow them to be armed in, in whatever way they feel comfortable with. But, but I don't want teachers teaching classrooms with badges and stripes and, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm superiorly ranked than you are. I, I think keep them incognito. And it'll be more more effective. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Here's David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, uh, Ken. Good job last night on the bait. Uh, when you took that right turn out the parking lot, was there many people in that movie theater for the Elvis movie? It looked to me pretty crowded. I'm pretty crowded, man. You know what Bono said about uh, Elvis? The American David. I always loved that, the American David. Mm -hmm. Um, And to your uh, benefit, Colonel Parker, I guess he would have been what I call the ultimate rent seeker. (laughs) Uh, And, man, when you get down to all the people that were influenced by this guy, you know, you talk about Christopherson, Bob Dylan. You know, look up Keith Richards online. And and it's amazing. I mean, Willie Nelson. Um, I mean, I, I love Dave Baker. Dave Baker loves the Beatles. Uh, if you guys listen to Lady Madonna, uh, and, and listen to Elvis sing Hey Jude yesterday, it's unbelievable how talented this cat was. And even your man Springsteen. Springsteen's got a great story about how he went I guess he and Stevie tried to go meet him one night there in Memphis. Um, they were drunk. My thing is they were that, real drunk. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I, hey, I don't. Uh, w- w- what I get out of that story is that that they actually talk about how nice the security guard treated them. Yep. He was like Mr. Presley. Mr. Presley's in. He's in Nevada. Whatever. He he's not here. That that's what that's what I got about that. You know, New Jersey people can't be kind of drunk and obnoxious at sometimes. But anyway, I'll leave you this, man. If there was anybody that loved America that wore that American Eagle cape, Elvis Presley. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. You know, thank you, the, thank you very much. Well, I mean, in, in the scene, um, I mean, I've, I've told you guys. I know you hadn't done it, but I've asked you to do this. You don't do anything. I ask. Um, I've asked you to watch Springsteen on Broadway on Netflix. And there's a scene there early. You don't have to watch it all, but early in, uh, he talks about being from a boardwalk town and, uh, you know, where everything is a bit of a fraud. Um, and then he says, I didn't work at a factory and all these other. But he said he, you know, he knew at a very early, early age what he wanted to be. He said in September of 1956, on a 19-inch Admiral television, the world or his world changed. And he said a kid from the Southern Sticks electrified his universe like it had never been electrified before. And he's talking about Elvis, a kid from the Southern Sticks. I think it was what uh, Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken, 
Isn't he from originally from Mississippi? Um, I think so. I mean, he made Memphis, Memphis famous with yeah. Graceland and all that. But um, what was his hometown? It's, uh, Tupelo, Tupelo, Mississippi, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But uh, yeah, he. Um, I mean, he changed the world. I mean, he really and truly changed the world. And Springsteen says, you know, it, there was a generation that wanted more, more liberty, um, more freedom, more right to ex- express yourself. And uh, remember, that would have been about the same time. Reefer Madness, you know, and some of these uh, very controlling voices in government. I mean, Elvis was a, I mean, I don't know if Elvis was a contrarian or not, but I mean, Elvis was very much a liberating spirit. I'm not saying, I'm not saying everything Elvis did was good. I mean, I'm certainly not saying that. I mean, he didn't lead to some of what we deal with today. I mean, but but you know, people that were being forced to conform didn't want to conform. And and like Bruce says, you know, all that changed in September of 1956 because we could, um, he says, we the unwashed, we the unclean, we who were told to get in line realized that we didn't have to do what we were told because this guy demonstrated uh, something that said it's okay to be who you are. And, 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 you know, we, the world is very different today in our allowing people to express themselves. Uh, we went through a period of time where that sort of conduct was reprimanded, extensively reprimanded. Um, you better get back in there and do that and do this and do that. That's why I've always, um, loved rock and roll. I mean, I know rock and roll is a mixed bag. I'm not crazy. I understand how many rock stars have gone to rehab and, I understand the divorce rate and, and, you know, I mean, I get all that. I'm not naive to any of that. Um, but, but I just believe rock and roll to me expresses uh, an energy about America that, that is, as David said, patri- extremely patriotic, be who you are. And if people judge you, let them judge you. People say things about it, let, you know, let people say things. And I think more than anything, Elvis and rock and roll liberated people and said it's okay to be who you want to be. Um, I've had my kids. I mean, how many how many kids want to be in a rock and roll band? I mean, if you love music, everybody wanted to be. In a, but how many of you really believed you could do it? Well, I mean, my, you said you did, but I mean, your father was a guitarist, right? And um, so, so you had that, I don't know, that all ancillary force kind of leading you in that direction. Um, nobody really believes they're going to be in a successful rock and roll band. But some do. And I think those guys that have been successful at rock and roll, you talk about McCartney, I talk about Springsteen, um, somebody in the hall a second ago was talking about Tom Petty. Those folks have affected culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've had major impacts on culture, and it ain't all been good. I mean, I'm sure it ain't all been good, but it has allowed a liberating of the human spirit that I think is very much at the center of America. What did a flock of seagulls do for culture? Well, I mean, they were a one-hit wonder. That was just one of those fits and rages. I wanted to make my dad mad. <laughs> I mean, subconsciously, I'm sure that's what it was. My dad probably had me, he was trying to get me to fit in a box, and I was at the age I didn't want to fit in the box, and um, that looked like a cool thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it ended up being a real dumb thing <laughs> to do, but uh, welcome to the club. But I think you and I agree with this. The guys that left their mark, and the ladies, the ladies and gentlemen who left their mark, they did it with longevity, durability, um, staying power. McCartney is still a relevant rock and roll figure at the age of 80. Bruce is still a relevant rock and roll figure at the age of 75 or 6. Um, Dylan, at what was Dylan, 82 or 3 or 4? Uh, people still pay attention to what he says. Um, a flock of seagulls is playing on a cruise ship. You know, for 55 years. If, they're, if yeah. they're lucky. If they're lucky, making 800 bucks and yeah. 
getting a good bump. But all the other something. ones you just mentioned, they're still selling out stadiums. And, and I think the reason is that uh, people sense in them, wow, that guy pursued his dreams despite what the odds may have been. And in them, we see some of what we wish we were. That's a weird way to say it, but I really believe that. They, they rolled the dice and took the chance and did the crazy thing of believing they could be a long-lasting rock and roll band. We kind of talked about it. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jamie. Morning, sir. Morning, guys. Morning, Ken. Morning, Jim. Um, Ken, um, in the spirit of Elvis, last night, you did a great job, TCB, taking care of business. Mm-hmm. You really did. And uh, I want to tell you, I, the way Manis came off to me on the radio, she sounded very anxious. She sounded like she knew she was up against someone with a strong backbone. And uh, she kept wanting to take the light away from the confrontation and let's make it more civil. And I, I think that she sees her, her, her lifelong dream of becoming, uh, of, of getting this position slipping away from her. And uh, she sound her voice sounded nervous. And um, Ellen just came across as, uh, someone that was uh, is ready to jump in, ready to go up against the um, the um, the what's the word I'm looking for against the um, education machine. establishment. Yep, she's ready to go up against the machine, and um, that's very attractive. And nothing's going to change with Manus. I think she is. Um, this is my feeling. I think she's one to go along to get along and not make any waves. And uh, Ellen sounds like she's ready to make waves. Um, but that's what I, I – I just think he did a good job last night. And uh, I've been wanting to call you all week about this Juneteenth thing. And there just had not been an opportune time to do it because you've had great shows all week. Um, and one other thing about the, um, uh, about the teachers and uh, more pay if they, they take on that responsibility, maybe pay for their uh, training. That might, that might be a, an option also. Y'all have a great weekend. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that, Jim. Covered a lot of subjects there. I think he compared to me to Elvis, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Am I right? I think he kind of did. Thank you very much. Take, taking care of it. <laughs> TCV. Ain't nobody painted on his plane. From what I've got, what I've read about Elvis. I don't ever, I never saw his plane. I don't believe he left a lot of money behind. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think he made an ass of money. But I think he spent all of it in Cadillacs. Yeah, living. I mean, he bought people Cadillacs just because they looked like they needed a Cadillac. Uh, (laughs) You know, from what I've read, he would go to car dealerships at night because he'd be like mobs would show up if they knew he was going. So, you know, the lady that took care of his house or whatever, he'd buy her a Cadillac. And, you know, he found out her sister had been in the hospital and he'd buy her a house. (laughs) I mean, he had a big time uh, spending money, but I don't think he left because from what I've read, Priscilla was forced to turn Graceland into kind of a uh, museum, and it became, uh, I mean, it's probably the most profitable thing Elvis ever did was allowing Graceland to be, you know, a, um, a what am I trying to say, a tourist attraction, yeah. and um, yeah. and it took off like crazy, and um, and they kind of- Generate revenue. Yeah, a lot of revenue, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think Elvis made a lot of money, but I don't think he died with a big estate. He died with a big estate. Uh, planes and cars and houses and things like that. But I don't think he left a lot of do-re-me laying around when he checked out. Uh, we got a call? Okay, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments.
We are completely off track now. We are doing nothing we're supposed to be doing. This is a conservative political radio show, and all we've talked about for 30 minutes is McCartney, Springsteen, Elvis, um, Bono, who else? I mean, we hadn't mentioned Haggard and Jones, have we? <laughs> Not yet. We yeah. just did. But you, you've been around. Roll, I mean, you, you've been around music all of your life. I yeah, mean, I've, I've listened to music all my yeah, life. And sometimes you've been we, in the business of music all of your life. But we, we have the debate as to whether you know that's raw talent there, and, and and that success, you know, comes out of just raw talent alone, or is it raw talent and just working your butt off? How much of it is luck? And some luck. I mean, you're right. you, you got to believe that the, Paul McCartney was not the only guy in, in England that could write music. I mean, he's not the only guy that could have met John Lennon, and out of that came probably the greatest rock band ever. Um, Elvis gets accused of knocking off a lot of things. You know, the African-American was not allowed to do certain things in that period of time, and Elvis kind of hung around there and, you know, watched and listened and learned and, and you know, profited enormously off of um what he may or may not have created because he gets credit with inventing rock and roll. I mean, I don't have you say invent rock and roll. Um, I have said that Limbaugh was the Elvis of talk radio. <laughs> you know, he was the creator of something that didn't even exist before um, he shows up. But, but I think we would agree. Um, the two, I mean, they probably argue three on the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll. There's probably only one that we could debate. I mean, I think it's obvious Elvis is there. It's obvious that the Rolling Stones are there, and it's obvious the Beatles are there. I mean, it's this fourth, you know, who's going to be uh, Roosevelt? <laughs> you know, you got Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln. Okay, nobody's arguing about that. I think those three earned their stripes. Yeah. Uh, Roosevelt, well, he was there when he was the president when he commissioned a statue, so a little home cooking. But, um, but, but Elvis and the Beatles and the Stones, I don't know anybody that could say, well, you're wrong. They don't belong on there. No, nah, that's a hard argument to make. It's the other that we have so right. much fun with about who or who or not. And, you know, is it Dylan? Uh, no. I, well, I mean, you say no. Some would say yes. Is it, uh, is it Springsteen? Some would say no. no. Some would say, is it the Bay City Rollers? Everybody would say no. no. <laughs> <laughs> is it a flock of seagulls? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> Absolutely not. But, yeah, we're, we're letting our audience down by digressing into the world. But, you know, you, make, you ask an interesting point, and I do believe this. You've been around this a lot longer than I have, kind of as an insider. So you've met rock and roll superstars mm -hmm. i mean a lot Luckily. of it is talent no question i mean you know lyric i mean writing songs and and hearing things that other people can't hear that's a god-given talent but but i would argue the great ones the truly great ones take that god-given talent and aren't afraid to work as hard at that as a coal miner does at a coal mine or a nurse does at the hospital or a construction worker does on a construction job you know they tell the story about instant success that some of these artists appear to have but is not instant i mean there's probably years and years of practice and work and honing the craft and then when they produce the music that becomes you know successful and touches people and reaches people and then you be considered to have success and my only you know uh the only thing i can say you know from basically the outside but having the opportunity to, to go to concerts and meet some of the the big stars and i've told you this before is that uh, that usually it's the biggest names that that are the nicest and they seem to be at the least, most grounded is that, that is that fair to well, say the most they grounded act okay. grounded and humbled and really you know meet you nice and i've seen some some here today gone tomorrow artists that were not nice and that's kind of the only, that's as close as I ever got to any of that part of the world. But, but you told a story one day about meeting Don Henley. 
and you you said what are you thinking about and you kind of like i wish i didn't ask that question but anyway he didn't say you know what groupie we're going home with tonight or how much liquor we're going to drink that was joe walsh i mean he, he was <laughs> yeah I, I asked him and, and we had and that was it was one of those little intimate uh meetings we got to have backstage at the don henley concert and each of us got to you know interact with him a little bit when it came to me, I said, I said, Don, what, what do you think of when you are on stage and you're playing, you know, some of the great classics like Hotel California? Do you go back to when you guys wrote and produced that song? Um, you know, do you go back to when you, you wrote it? I mean, what was it? And he says, I'm worried about hitting the next blank note. Because that's his job. That's and, his and job. It's, and and it's takes hard that, work. Yeah. And he takes that job very, very seriously. Take a break. Back in a minute. Days to make Fridays trivia sponsored by pepsi of florence here's the question you ready who did elvis or in what studio did elvis make his first recording in what studio did elvis presley record his debut song 843-661-0937 thanks to pepsi of florence and, and the winner wins a six-pack of pepsi product and it takes mondays to make a couple of takes mondays to make fridays t-shirts courtesy of our good friends at pepsi of florence in what studio did Elvis record his debut song? 843-661-0937. Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? Sun Studios. Sun Studios. Sun Records, Sun Studios. I'm owned in, uh, I think Sam Phillips was the owner, and that's who produced Elvis' first record. Yep, you're right. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Earl Bullard in Venezuela. Thank you very much, Earl, for listening. Thank you for tolerating this last hour of non-political speak. We'll get you back to freehold in just a second. Uh, but, yeah, thank got listeners over in Bennettsville, Rip. Yeah. Um, thanks to everybody, and I mean that sincerely. Nice. Uh, just got confirmation from my wife. She said, okay, we'll go to the movie tonight. So we'll spend 60 bucks on tickets and 150 <laughs> on two drinks and a popcorn. And nobody will put a mask on. The theater is the only place on this planet somebody will rob you and not wear a mask. Enjoy your week. <laughs> thanks to Pepsi of Florts. Really and truly, they for whatever reason, continue to be kind and gracious to us. Enjoy your weekend.